Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over a 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com. Helping you filter through the noise. Real talk. Black talk. Today in Trial OJ, lawyers argued over whether the former Heisman winner is an arthritic cripple incapable of murder. He has bad knees, uh, arthritis, and limited mobility. He may look like Tarzan, but he moves like Tarzan's grandfather. After that, the jury got a peek at an exercise video Simpson taped just two weeks before the murder. Break it all the way down. Feel it in your knee. Yeah. Love that intensity. And if you work it out... Hello? Is this Laura Hart McKinney? Yes. How may I help you? The Laura Hart McKinney, who used to live in Los Angeles, who has tapes of LAPD officer Mark Furman. How did you find me? I'm an investigator working for O.J. Simpson. We believe our client is innocent, and your tapes could really help him. Well, I don't want to help him. Look, I was just writing a screenplay about the LAPD. I met Mark, and I interviewed him for research. So there are tapes. What does he say? How inflammatory is it? I never asked to be a part of this. Is it true? Yeah. Tapes exist. I think they're really ugly. They have phrases like, uh... <clears throat> stuff like, get niggers, frame niggers. Plant evidence. Jesus Christ, you, can we confirm the authenticity? I've asked around. Her lawyers have shot the tapes to London papers, TV tabloids. They've heard snippets. Supposedly there's an offer on the table for 250 grand. Hmm. Why didn't she sell? Well, that's the strange part. She doesn't actually care about the money. She'd rather sell her screenplay. Hmm. She's a screenwriter. Or, well, a wannabe screenwriter. She was living in L.A., she couldn't make a living, so she moved to North Carolina to teach screenwriting. I don't understand. How can you teach screenwriting if you can't sell a script? Gentlemen, you are missing the point. I don't care who she is or what she does. What matters are these tapes. We must get them. Get niggas? Frame niggas? That takes my breath away. These tapes will allow Mr. Simpson to walk free. Well, well it's like get too cocky. I mean, we haven't heard them. Look, lucky breaks don't just fall from the sky. Yes, they do, Mr. Check. God brought us these tapes. There's something much larger at play here. This is manna from heaven. 
the cows context of white supremacy Gus T. Renegade in for another broadcast hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy today's date Tuesday January 12 2021 so I have been told uh, before we get started I think one of our listeners uh, brand new mom uh, first offspring just had a so-called birthday not that you know i'm into celebrating birthdays but if you are going to do one i guess your first offspring's first so-called birthday that might be one to bend the rule for i hope everybody was safe have a good time uh next certainly since we're getting two oj days this week have to remind people our book club uh we are at the halfway point of jeffrey tubin's the run of his life the people versus oj simpson we are getting to the good stuff starting the trial all of the build-up and jury selection and everything else getting to the trial i'm <laughs> so excited uh and it's like we got a supplement we'll get extra information to help us as we move through the book uh it has been a hoot uh, especially for folks a lot of people saying that either they were really young and so they were either a child or not born when the trial happened or they remember where they were, what they were doing, and you know how their views have changed and such since the trial. So it has been uh, fun for lots of reasons. And whew, the fun is about to increase exponentially with the trial beginning the book club on Thursday. Uh, we should be here every day, in fact, for about the next week. We'll be here tomorrow. We'll go over the details. But just to uh, stay tuned, we should be on our counter-racist grind for good week as we begin the new year uh 12 years on the air invest if you think the program is constructive listener supported counter racist radio with that the audio that you heard at the top uh that is from the fx series extraordinarily popular won all kinds of emmys and such uh the run of his life based on jeffrey tubin's book uh he was a consultant for that project and he is depicted in the middle of the uh uh, show or what have you series uh we heard from building to the climax the scene where they discover the Mark Berman tapes, infamous, uh, the former LAPD detective uh, who uh, claimed that he found the bloody glove on Mr. Simpson's Rockingham estate, scaled the wall, all of the you know really key points uh, in the case, uh, and had been asked by F. Lee Bailey, who was a guest on our program just a few weeks back, had been asked previously on the stand, do you call black people niggers have you ever called black people niggers and all the rest of it and he staunchly absolutely not no i don't all the rest of it and then whammo months later the tapes are found and uh, and even we'll ask with our guest today were the tapes even needed did oj simpson need these tapes the so-called manna from heaven did he need them to walk or We'll see. Our guest for today's broadcast, a private in- uh, investigator for many years. He's worked on uh, a number of really famous cases, but I think I could be wrong, but I think O.J. Simpson still takes the cake uh, as the case he is most well known uh, for being associated with uh, and I believe credited uh, with being the one who tracked down the leads and information to get 
the Mark Furman audio recordings. Uh, real hoot to have him with us on the broadcast today. Joining us live, Mr. Patrick J. McKenna. Mr. McKenna, are you with us, sir? Yes, I am. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for sharing a bit of your Tuesday evening. So glad we could have you on the broadcast with us. Uh, before we hop into the details, ask uh, we have so many questions to go over with the Simpson case. Uh, anything that you'd like to share with our listeners just to kind of give a brief introduction, who you are and the work that you're doing? Well, sure. Like you said, my name is Pat McKenna. Um, <clears throat> I've been a private investigator since uh, about January of 1981. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, mostly criminal defense. Uh, I started out in the public defender's office, and uh, prior to that, I was a parole officer in Chicago, where I'm from, moved to Florida in '78. Um, and so, basically, for the last whatever it is now, I don't do the math well, but 30 some odd years, I've been doing mostly criminal defense. And uh, I got involved in this case because I got a call. I want to say the 15th of June. 94 from Bailey Epley Bailey's partner, Ken Fishman. He called me, said, Hey, uh, we might be getting in this Simpson case. Now this is what, two days later, three days later. And, uh, he said, if we get it, can you go to Chicago? I said, Oh, my hometown. Sure. Uh, and so that's how it got started. And then he said, well, you'll get a call from Shapiro's office in an hour or two. I just want to make sure you're available. Well, before I got that call, I went and got airline tickets and everything lined up to get out of town the same day and get to Chicago. So that's how I got started. Uh, I guess that's June 15th, and I was in Chicago that afternoon, and I had uh, gone directly to the O'Hare Plaza Hotel, uh, which is where Simpson stayed that that one night. Um, And so I got set up there. And, uh, you know, took off from there. I spent about, uh, I want to say till early July, I think July 3rd, from the 15th to the 3rd in Chicago. It took me quite a while to get to talking to people because it was so insane with media and uh, everything there. I mean, uh, Clinton was in town. It was the World Cup, first time in America. Uh, So the, and then, Obviously, the Simpson thing at this hotel, you, you, it's hard to even describe. I mean, there were TV trucks as far as you could see. So I kind of just went in there and didn't, you know, I just checked in. Nobody knew who I was, and I tried to, and I thought I'd keep it that way. You know, it's uh, much better to do it that way. Hmm. Keep your ear to the ground, see what you can hear. So that's basically in the, and frankly, to tell you the truth, by the 15th, all I know on TV. I think Simpson did it. All I've heard is uh, uh, what you, if your listeners are old enough, uh, back then, all you heard on TV were the the titans of the industry, Tom Brokaw, Dan Rather, uh, Peter Jennings, every night, every all day long. NBC has learned from sources, Simpson's a, a suspect, and the old, and this day's started to go along he's the only suspect according to law enforcement there's blood in his washing machine ski mask everything so when i got the call i thought he probably had done it but that doesn't deter when in this work you know just so uh, I I just for listeners just get a question in really quick i think that's so important what you just shared number one you thought he was guilty 
at the time, sure. still taking the case, but sure. she thought he was guilty. And the press, the media at the time, the major thrust of the reporting, OJ did it. No presumption of innocence, no even presumption right. of there might be another suspect. Maybe we should be checking some other right. leads. No, he nope. did it. He did it by himself. OJ and I think that's important because he was such a big star like they have or I guess I'll ask it this way so many in the book that we're reading Jeffrey Tubin and so many other accounts it is OJ yep. Simpson got star treatment he was in movies and a big hall of famer and so he got so much more sympathy than he would have got if he had just been a regular olden Sampson, not some famous guy so did you see his celebrity right. spare him and how the media covered him in that first week or so Actually, it crushed them. Uh, I mean, the media, it, they eat their own. I mean, this guy, you know, I should couch my language instead of saying I thought he was guilty. I thought he maybe had done this. Guilty of what yet? So it wasn't uh, a who done it. It was a what happened. But I, I thought that he had probably done this just from what I learned from television, radio. I'm talking about that. at that time. That had to be probably the biggest media event in history, really, uh, in terms of criminal cases. And so, uh, you know, I get to Chicago and I still have this notion that perhaps, you know, there's trouble here, uh, for us or, you know, for the client. And so I, you know, started to look for perhaps, uh, and the good thing about thinking he might've done it, it helped me And questions that I had were, hoping that maybe if there is, there's a self-defense. I had now heard about the second uh, person being killed. There was two people. So I'm thinking, geez, maybe there's, who knows? Was there self-defense? Did he get attacked? I don't know. So most everybody I talked to there, when I finally got to talk to him, and it took a while because you had to get permission, for example, from the lawyers that represent the O'Hare Plaza, uh, the lawyers that represent Hertz, the lawyers that represent American Airlines, because these were the areas I wanted to go and find. I wanted to be like a video camera of from the moment Simpson got off the airline until he got back on the airline. So I tried to track and trace and uh, follow up on everything he may have done or where he had been, et cetera. So each person that I would interview that interacted with uh, Mr. Simpson I would always ask about cuts, bruises. Did you see any, you know, in my mind, I'm thinking, I got to start setting something up. Do we have a self-defense? What do we have? So in the end, it it really worked out great because those kind of details I went over with everybody and there was no cuts, no bruises, uh, no cut finger, for example, until after he was leaving. And, uh, Another thing that happened, fortunately for me, was when I got to Chicago, a guy I grew up with, still a dear friend of mine, uh, when I called him, I said, hey, I'm coming in there, don't tell anybody. Uh, and he said, and I asked if he could help me. He said, yeah, sure. He said, as a matter of fact, my, uh, not racquetball, he played handball, Bobby, my buddy. He says, my handball partner, and now a client of mine, is a guy named Charlie Smith. He's the head of Area 5 Detectives. Maybe I could set up a meeting. So I did get a meeting before I could talk to people because, like I said, I couldn't get through to anybody because of lawyers. 
And so uh, corporate lawyers, you know, telling everybody not to talk to anybody until they cleared, you know, who I was and I'm really who I say I was. And I had a letter from Shapiro and introduced myself to the Chicago cops that were on the scene. And anyway, the Chicago cop I met the, the second day I was there, Charlie, he wouldn't tell me a whole lot other than they were very upset with the L.A. Police Department. Uh, and, and the reason why is because they treated it when they got a call like a crime scene. They went to the hotel, blocked it down, treated everything, interviewed all the people they could interview, and then sent the reports to the LAPD without redacting names and addresses, right? They think, hey, we're all on the same team here. Here's uh, uh, Caroline Goburn. She's the front desk. Here's where she lives. Here's her phone number. Well, when you know LAPD leaked all of this stuff directly to the media with the addresses and phone numbers, and now these folks have got camera crews and everything on their doors at their homes, so everybody is kind of freaked out. So it was very difficult for me to arrange these interviews. But Charlie told me that, you know, they were kind of upset with LAPD because they're treating it very professionally. And LAPD, number one, they're in Chicago, two guys, uh, uh, Detective Looper and Detective LaFall, and they're holding press conferences in the hotel. And I remember I used to go over there with my, they didn't know who I was, with my, uh, and stand amongst the reporters and, and, and just listen to what they were saying, try to learn what the cops were saying. They're saying, oh, we take the murder weapons here and all sorts of stuff. So, uh, frankly, I just did my work. I talked to as many people uh, at, at the Plaza Hotel, the O'Hare Plaza. Then I spoke with the Hertz rental car people. And then I spoke with American Airlines people. All my interviews that I conducted were uh, sat in by uh, the corporate people. So, in other words, uh, the corporate uh, investigators for uh, American Airlines were ex-FBI agents. The corporate uh, investigator from uh, Hertz was a homicide detective out of Detroit, retired, we're now working for Hertz. Uh, the Plaza guys, they, I forget who those guys were. Uh, same thing, I think it was FBI or cops. So anyway, they'd sit in, which is very unusual. I don't usually let <laughs> Uh, police officers sit in or even ex-police officers sit in on interviews, but I didn't have a choice. So, you know, we'd sit there and interview, and then even once in a while, they'd ask a question. Was his hand sweaty? And they'd butt in, you know? And they were like, uh, actually, they helped, you know, because they were asking questions I might have forgot about. Or was his hand sweaty when he when he uh, shook your hand? or So, it turns out after each interview, we'd look at each other and go, man, that don't sound like a guy just committed a double murder. So I went from thinking, uh, yeah, this this is the guy, to leaving there two weeks later going, Jesus, this doesn't sound like a guy that just killed two people. It's not that he's cool, calm, and collected. He just didn't do things that I think someone that just committed a double murder would have done. Forget OJ. In that it is, O.J., I would think he would call back to quote his daughter, like Arnell, and say, hey, how was the movie tonight? Just to look over his shoulder and see how how close are the cops to catching me. His demeanor was such that it just, he'd have to be a, you know, a, a cold-blooded assassin for the mafia to pull this off and act this way, you know? His demeanor was just one of an innocent person. And then, like I said, I started to find out about the cut finger, 
and uh, which he cut in Chicago when he broke a glass in the um, sink when he got the call that his wife had been murdered or not murdered, killed. His wife had been killed. He starts, what? Nicole, he's freaking out. Uh, and he broke this glass. Well, fortunately for me, I end up finding this isn't while I'm in Chicago. This was a little later. I found a woman named Lori Menzioni who was on the phone with OJ because when he got this message from, I think it was Detective Phillips, the first thing he did was get on the phone with his secretary, Kathy Randa, back in LA. Kathy, something's happened, get me back home, bop, bop, bop. You know, Kathy did all of his travel arrangements and such. So she got on the phone with American Airlines, basically didn't hang up and get a new, they're all on this initial phone call, OJ to Kathy. She picked, she gets, calls in that American Airlines to connect OJ. American Airlines connects it to, I think it was called Cook's Travel uh, for emergency travel. And that's how this Lori Menzioni got the call. And so she's taking note. You know how they take notes, like if you, on a computer. So she's got her little notes going on. She didn't know who OJ Simpson was. And she hears the crash. What happened? Oh, I cut my finger. Oh, my God. And OJ's you know, crying and freaking out. And so that helped later on. Of course, the state fought, or the, the government, the prosecution in L.A. Thought, fought hard to keep her out. And Ito kept her out because he claimed uh, that phone call was not foundational. Uh, it's a legal thing. But because they had no record that O.J.'s on the phone with Cook's travel because of the way it had been I don't know what you call that, call forwarded or bring in somebody. So he kept it out, even though it was very, very important, really, to get to the truth, right? Because he got this whole story that O.J. did it, he cut his finger, he's walking along these footprints, dropping blood from his finger, which uh, later on, you know, we pretty much didn't destroy the blood evidence, but were able to illustrate that the collection of the, DNA and the blood and all that was very careless. Okay, it's not. We never fought the science. We had Barry Sheck and Peter Newfeld, who I've worked with before that case, and I'm still work with them on innocence project cases. Uh, who knew it DNA better than anybody? And they basically uh, were able to illustrate uh, that it was a culture of carelessness by the LA Crime Lab. You know, and these people didn't really have the sophistication that we have nowadays. It's much better. And, and uh, so we just brought it out. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. And, and the media covered it like we were, we're all a bunch of uh, liars. We, we, we think that cops conspired to frame an innocent man. We never said any of that. We're just doing what we do in criminal defense. You're trying to get to what the truth is. And so, I left Chicago and came back was to write my report. And uh, my secretary at the time was my wife, my wife, my ex-wife now. But so I get home and she, I said, she, I'm dictating my report to Shapiro. I don't know, I did 15, 18 pages of all the interviews. Never say anything to her. She turns around, she's done work for me for 30 years. And she turns around and says, wow, this doesn't sound like, what do you think? This doesn't sound, what do you think? I said, I don't. I don't know yet. I don't, it doesn't sound like a guy who killed two people. She thought the same thing. I send the reports out. Hmm. Lee gets Can, a, Lee 
can we pause right there just really quick yeah, we'll, yeah. You, you and your yeah. wife are thinking hmm this doesn't sound like a guilty person i just want to go back to get details just on sure. chicago before we push forward i think it's so Fair important enough. you uh two points number one you mentioned uh president clinton was in chicago at the time the yeah. world cup was taking place uh summer of 94 in chicago so you have extraordinary uh, police and enforcement officer presence in Chicago at the time. And even for this knife search, when the initial reports come out that, Hey, OJ Simpson uh, probably did this. And we think maybe what happened is that he took the incriminating evidence, the knife, bloody clothes, whatever else, ski mask. He loaded all this up in his luggage. He took it to Chicago and disposed of it someplace there, maybe out in the field across from the airport or at the Chicago airport, something like that. That was the narrative. So just if you can talk about the amount, of involvement in Chicago for this search like you said LAPD is there Chicago police is involved Secret Service I think (laughs) the Boy Scouts like this can you talk about the security uh, presence in Chicago and and frankly I'm by myself you know I'm a sole practitioner uh, doing my thing walking around and I'm hearing this stuff and I'm kind of reacting to it I don't know so I hear Oh, the story, I mean, these stories were getting outrageous about a guy seeing, a, you know, oh, I saw a six foot two black man go running into the field. So being a being being that I had worked with F. Lee Bailey for a number of years before this, it's a man that wants every detail you can think of. So in my head, I'm going, wait a minute, he would have had to if he left and go in this field. So now I go to his room. I, I try to see how you can get out. The only way to get out of there without being seen, for example, to do this dirty deed, like hide this stuff and not go through the lobby where you'd be seen by some people would be to go down the stairway. Oh, for Lee, I counted every, I forget how many stairs there were. So you'd have to go, first of all, you'd have to be smart enough or, or know that you go down the stairs and when you go out the garage, wherever to go to this field, the door would lock behind you. So you'd have to have presence of mind to keep the door open so you could sneak back in and run back up nine, 90 stairs, whatever many stairs. So as I'm going through all this, one and one of the interviews I did was a front desk girl, and she said, oh, you should talk to, uh, Jesus' name escapes me now, but he was the, uh, the uh, janitor, the maintenance guy, the supervisor of maintenance for the hotel. He had an original rookie card that he wanted Simpson to sign. Of course, he works in days. Simpson got in at three or four in the morning. So he left with her. OJ signs this card. So then I want to see the card. And I track this guy down. I'm talking to him. He says, by the way, so we're talking. I said, how could a guy get out of here? And and back in those days, it was the beginning of, if you recall, in for a hotel, you didn't have a key anymore. You had like a credit card that you swiped to open the door, you know? And so what back then, I didn't know this. And this guy's telling me, he says, well, listen, there's a little computer chip or something in the door that will print out everything every time you entered or exited the door. And that was the protection against if someone came down and said, hey, somebody stole a million bucks worth of my jewelry. They could look and see who came in or not who, but the times the doors were open and closed that they could catch a maid or something like that. So anyway... I, I learned, he gets me this stuff, it was a company out, outside of Chicago, and to get, I get the whole report that this door, 
was opened when OJ went in it and was closed and never opened again until he left to go downstairs and leave in the morning. So there was no, to me, you know, I'm running all around like a chicken with my head cut off. I said, well, that, that I can debunk this crap because he never left his room. Right. Unless he climbed out a window from, I think it was on the ninth floor, room 916 or 914, I forget his room. So I kind of knocked that out. That's, so I spent a lot of time thinking, geez, this is crazy. The, the TV is, they're going nuts. And meanwhile, in my hand, I've got these interviews thinking, wow, this doesn't sound like, uh, you know, somebody just killed two people. And now I find, that the people from Hertz that picked him up, these two kids, were the guy who picked him up the night before, threw Simpson's clubs and bags, other than his bag he was going to go to the hotel room, in the trunk of his car and left it there because he's going to pick O.J. up at 6 in the morning to take him to the golf course for a function for Hertz. So all the crap in t- on TV about O.J. hid this stuff in his bag and blah, blah, blah. Well, that couldn't have happened because... The guy, Jim Merrick, who had it in his trunk, got back to the hotel that morning, not in time. O.J. had already gone to the airport with a different Hertz guy who now sees the cut finger and the and the emotion of O.J. and all that stuff. So um, we were able to show that was nonsense. So I did a whole timeline of the bags, the golf bags, and all that sort of stuff. Plus, if you think about this logically, you kill two people, you're going to take all the murder weapons and everything and put them in your luggage. What if your luggage gets dropped off in memphis or you know how many people have lost luggage over the years so metal detectors real yeah i mean so that stuff to me there was so much in this case that i would not laugh at but go geez this doesn't i mean can we make sense out of this that doesn't mean what you're saying doesn't make sense so i was fighting both the narrative and the media but the prosecution's going with all this stuff, too, I'm thinking. So I'm trying to debunk every kind of thing I'm seeing out there because, frankly, I'm not talking to anybody. I haven't talked to O.J., haven't talked to Shapiro, none of the lawyers, because it is insane, you know. You can't even get into Shapiro's office because the phones were always busy. So I had no way to communicate. So I'm just doing my thing in Chicago, do my whole thing and come back. Uh, to Florida where I live and send the stuff, send my reports out there and sit. Basically I figured I'm done. You know, they probably got investigators in LA and all that sort of stuff to pick it up. So I did my little job. And then, uh, you know, I'm watching the preliminary hearing and Furman comes on and I remember calling Lee and saying, man, this, this, you know, I've seen a million, trust me. And, and ask any public defender anywhere in the country, you know, when the cops, are tending to be lying. And you also know when they're lying and they look at you with that look like, yeah, I'm lying, but you can't catch me lying. Uh, I hate to say that all cops do this, but if you practice criminal defense and if you're in public defender offices around the country, you've seen it a million times. So I call Lee and say, man, something stinks about this guy. What specifically Uh, stood out from the preliminary hearing about Mark Furman? Yeah, I said, look how, uh, you know, he's kind of like, Typical, uh, you know, this handsome uh, Marine, ex-Marine. He's sitting there with a with a pointer on a chart there, and he's, well, the, the light cascaded down the cobblestone walkway from the east to the west. And, and he's all going on and on and on. And I just remember when, when uh, I think Jerry Ullman was cross-examining him at the time, and when he started to talk about the gloves or the gloves, 
firm would rub under his nose. And we did it. We showed all this in closing argument. You know, we cut all the different pieces from the prelim and put them in there. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's just something in our world that you notice, you know, something's not right about this guy, uh, you know. And, and of course, then they had the whole story about the knife. I don't know if your listeners remember this, but uh, there was a place called Ross Cutlery that when OJ was doing a movie or a commercial or something downtown LA, I guess you have a lot of free time in between, you know, cut. And I mean, your folks out there, there's probably people in that business that know what I'm talking about. But he, during a break, would just walk around looking to kill time. And he bought this knife as I guess a gift. He bought a lot of stuff over the years that were gifts and had it home in his house. And we started, they started hearing about this knife from Ross Cutler. It's a big, big thing in the prelim. Remember? Uh, I don't know if you remember, but yes, sir. all the prosecutions making a big thing about this knife. And Van Adder took a whole tray down to the, uh, medical examiner, Dr. Golden, who we already heard said that he thought there were two different, uh, knife wounds, which to us, there's two different people. There's more than one killer. But then Adder took a whole tray of from Ross Cutlery to the ME to say any of these look like. So they're all thinking they got the knife. Now, uh, Simpson bought a knife. He only paid cash, 100 bucks cash, blah, blah, blah. No receipts. Well, <clears throat> that's not OJ's fault. That's probably the guy at the Ross Cutlery probably folded that 100 and put it in his pocket. But. But, uh, you know, I never paid tax on it. But but uh, you remember they abandoned that whole thing because O.J.'s sitting there telling the lawyers, Jesus, I, that, I think that, that knife is probably in my home. I can only imagine what's going through O.J.'s head at this time. He's going, Jesus, i got nothing to do with this in there. This is sounding quite nefarious, you know. And the limo guy says he sees me running up the driveway and all this stuff. And, he, and, and so... Uh, so we, they sent, not we, I was still in, in Florida. Uh, they sent out a special master and they found the knife in OJ's home, examined it with a microscope and they put it in a brown envelope. And if you remember that judge held up the envelope at the end of the hearing, well then obviously the prosecution was smart enough to say, uh oh, that must be the knife in that envelope. What could possibly be in this secret envelope? So they abandoned. You never heard about Ross Cutlery and that knife or anything later. But boy, in the preliminary, it sure looked bad. And they made a big thing about that. So they did that so, with so many things uh, that as the trial went on, we pretty much, I thought, debunked all of that crap. But uh, uh, I ended up talking to Lee and he said, you need to come out here. They're not really investigating the defense that is they only had one guy out there and he, he said they're not knocking on doors and anything and this is what i do for a living i hit the streets and it's old-fashioned knock on doors who saw who heard what you know mm-hmm. try to figure out what happened that's how we then built the the timeline from that evening <clears throat> which became our defense timeline and demeanor he didn't have time he didn't have uh, the demeanor of a killer, and then we have Mark Furman, which, you know, that was just the beginning, you know. When I when I got out there, they said, well, I think Jeff Tubin is the guy that unearthed that lawsuit uh, where Furman was suing for his pension. I wasn't even out there yet, so by the time I get out there, this whole article in The New Yorker is out about maybe he planted the glove. Of course, 
the rest of the world, the media says these slimy defense people are going to blame this this poor detective for planting evidence. Just they're just making it up. Well, it turns out we didn't make up anything. We I started. They said who's we got to go after. It. We're not go after, it, but we have. Yeah, you know, in our terms, I think we call it, we got to go after the the cops. And. uh I remember we're in Shapiro's conference room and the other investigators were ex-cops. And, and the one guy says, well, I don't go after cops. I raised my hand. I said, well, I do. I'll take, I'll take the cops as part of my, you know, my new job was knocking on doors, doing the timeline. I said, I'll take the cops too. I'll, I'll look into their backgrounds. And so that's, you know, I had Furman and I had uh, not a whole lot came from Ben Adder. Tom Lang was clean as a whistle uh, Phillips too, I think, but Furman had a history. So I kind of honed in on this guy and, uh, amongst other things I was doing out there. So that's how the tapes came about. But before that ever happened, by can the you, time Furman came go can ahead. You, with, with Mark Furman, cause you said you go out to LA and you do some knocking on doors. Uh, I think, Rosa Lopez is important with the whole yeah. Mark Furman and his story. Now I know for folks, for listeners and everything, we haven't got to Rosa Lopez in the trial yet, but she was someone who was greatly ridiculed uh, in the trial. And oh man, the the sleazy defense team, they coached this witness and just got yeah. her to make up some testimony that she saw the Bronco and what have you. Can you talk about the importance of Rosa Lopez and even what she says okay. about maybe yeah. even hearing Mark Furman? Yes. So when we get to Rosa, now, Rosa had been interviewed by Shapiro's detective, uh, Pavlik. And that wasn't one of my things. You know, I wasn't, Rosa wasn't mine. He, you know, we kind of whack up witnesses. I'm a, I'm over on Bundy developing a timeline. I'm talking to everybody that lived on Bundy. So when the Rosa thing happens, what they did to this poor woman was unbelievable. The way they trashed her and she just a sweet little person. And before they did that though, um, it became a little bit of a stink because Rosa had said something, I think to a relative about that's not what happened because now Shapiro and those guys are saying that Rosa Lopez saw the Bronco at 10 15, because if you recall, in the prelim and then the trial, the government's timeline is that Simpson committed these murders at 10:15 because they got a problem with the clock. He's got to have plenty of time because he's getting into a limo at 10:55 that night, clean as a whistle, getting ready to travel, cool, calm, and collected. So he's now they figure we only got a half hour, you know, half hour to to, to figure all this out. They haven't found anything yet—blood, I mean, clothes, knives, any of that. So I spent a bunch of times with Rosa and, and, uh, and so I'd go to her house. She lived in the same house next door to OJ with the Salingers, I think was the name of the family that lived next door. So I would go and sit with Rosa and, and go over this with her. And she was so distraught over the crap she was getting by her own family. And they were just, you know, painting her as this horrific liar that the defense had set up. So I'd sit and say, well, tell me what happened. And she remembered, you know, well, listen, like every night I, I'd make myself a cup of tea and I took the dog out to piddle and uh, that was about it. So I go through everything with her, show me. And so she's got a little stove and I see she doesn't do the stove. She puts a cup of water in the microwave. 
about a minute and 30 to heat the water up. At the same time, she's putting a collar around the dog. You had what, you know how you put those collars on dogs when they scratch themselves? So this dog had to have this collar over that little white plastic like hood or something. She's doing that while the thing is cooking. Well, Pavlik had talked her to say, well, it took five minutes to make a cup of tea, then five minutes to put the collar on, then five minutes to go outside. This whole process took a minute, minute and a half. So as I'm going through, I said, well, so this is what happened. So now I'm thinking, you know, we got a problem now here. This would have been just a, a decent witness to throw into the mix. She saw the Bronco at 10 at night and saw it again the next morning, and it didn't look like it had moved. That's all. That's all she was. I shouldn't say that's all, but that is kind of important. Now, you can argue and say, well, he could have. She could have seen it at 10. He could have taken off and got their temp and got back the next morning. You could have, if you're the government, you could have tried to move it that way. Now they paint her as this horrific liar and, and, and try to destroy her. What I found from talking to her at, at length, I learned something even more important. That early in the morning, meaning between one and five, she heard what she called hard footsteps. To me, I, I learned late up to talk to her a lot. She meant dress shoes, you know, uh, hard foot walking up and down the driveway. I believe that was Mark Furman and Roberts, his partner, because they had come up there at one o'clock and walked back and forth. <clears throat> now, here's Furman who makes all of these wonderful reports. I saw melted ice cream at 10. He's got all these notes detailed. He le- leaves out, <clears throat> pardon me, the fact that he interviewed Rosa Lopez. And that would be important to learn what she said. But see, in my opinion, he did that to find out if she saw him go plant that glove under the air conditioner. I think I said that on Larry King and he about, you know, dropped the mic. And this is, I'm talking about right after the verdict, I'm thinking this, uh, because by that time, I am so convinced that this uh, detective with a horrific hatred towards uh, uh, black people, number one, but especially black men married to white women, okay, or even dating women. And so I'm jumping around a little bit, but learning all I did about Furman up until the time he cross-examined by Lee, I had, I want to say, six black binders, three-inch binders of papers and interviews and stuff about this guy, prior cases. <clears throat> So when Lee cross-examined him, again, the media says, oh, the old man lost his fastball. Mark Furman was great on the stand. All of them were saying that. And when he come off the stand, uh, Sherry, whatever her name was, the prosecutor, and he, he was surrounded. They would surround him, you know, at the break. Oh, you're doing great, Mark. And I was sitting in the front row, or not in the front, inside the rail behind the defense table. So I would just not say anything. And, and, uh, and, of course, they knew that he was my guy because people that I had interviewed told the prosecutor. They're kind of up my behind about maybe I'm doing something wrong or, or, or whatever, you know, like I'm part of trashing this wonderful cop. And all I'm doing is gathering facts. I'm not going to – I don't stand in front of a jury. I don't do anything. I get this stuff and give it to the lawyer like Lee and Johnny. And, uh, you know, we'd have our meetings and go, Gee, God almighty, this guy – planted the glove and we could go for 10 hours. I could go with you for the next week on this, all the various little pieces that put together to show, you know, Simpson had no time to do this. 
And if he had no time, how does the glove get to Rockingham? So we always uh, uh, postulated that the glove was taken by Furman up there, somewhere between one and four, because if you recall, Van Adder and Lang don't come on the case until four in the morning and Furman gets kicked off. Well, Furman has a prior uh, knowledge of OJ and Nicole having a fight, so he has more of a motivation to plant a glove than OJ does have a motivation to kill the mother of his children in what we've now nailed down. This is after the trial. We've done a timeline on Goldman. So we did all our timelines that never occurred to us. And it really wasn't me. It was a fellow that did a website that marked that uh, Ron Goldman really never even got to Nicole's house till about 1030. And that's from all the testimony of the people at Metzaloon, et cetera, et cetera. And he went home to shower and all that. And you can go on and on about Goldman. But the 1015 is total BS, okay? We, we blow that right out of the wall. And their own people on Bundy, they all kind of blow that. No, no, no. I didn't hear a dog at 1015. I heard this. So the only one in the world that says he hears the plaintiff wail of a dog is Pablo Fenyev's who I also discovered during the trial, I didn't discover it, it was sent to me, were two screenplays uh, that he had written for submission to HBO, slasher-type movies, were in the first lines of both of these different, totally different screenplays. He's got language like, in, you know, in the darkness, in the distance, the plaintiff wail of a police siren could be heard. You know, kind of, you know, that screenplay stuff to get a movie started. So here he uses plaintiff whale in two different screenplays. And then he comes in. I can only, it makes me laugh when I think about this. I can only imagine when they heard this guy's statement in the DA's office. Oh, that's it. The plaintiff whale of a dog. The dog saw his master being killed, started to cry. I mean, they must have lost their minds thinking, we got it now. This is, not, I, I mean, they had to because it's ridiculous. That's probably the only time in the history of the world that they time a murder on a plaintiff whale of a dog and ignore, attack, and belittle hum- the human beings on Bundy that came forward. You don't see something, say something, all that, that law enforcement loves. Well, they, they had all these people. They had eight or ten people that came forward and said, no, 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 the dog starts barking at 1035, 1040, 10, whatever. We had the dog walkers and the people in the neighborhood and all that stuff. So our timeline was really close to the truth and even since then i think tom lang and ben adder in their book have agreed that the timeline was more closer to 10 30 they pushed it to 10 30 10 35 either way if you believe the government's case then you believe this murder happened at 10 15 and guess what you want to believe two and two is nine have a nice day i'm sick of i really am sick of arguing with uh and trust me uh gus 26 years of arguing with friends, family, criminal defense lawyers, everybody. Uh, and I must say, both black and white people, my black and white friends say, ah, Mac, you're crazy, you're full of beans. You know, he did it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so the timeline was bulletproof. And so you go, this guy had 20, when you really examine Goldman, this guy has about 21 to 22 minutes to get over there, get in a rage, kill two two people, one of whom arrived on the scene. So if he's going to kill Nicole, he has no idea that he's now going to confront 
a second person and have to kill that person. Who's 20 years younger than him. Yeah. I mean, um, the whole thing, we didn't ever want to say, oh, he's arthritic. He couldn't have done it. Well, you just put this stuff out there for people with common sense at the end of a trial to start to think about everything. We didn't even need that. You know, it came to the point where the timeline was so bulletproof that who cares? Not who cares if he had arthritis and all that, but really, if you knew him then, this wasn't the guy that ran for 2,000 yards. I mean, this guy was beat up and, you know, walking slow and, and all that sort of stuff. So he would have had to come in to be Superman or be on drugs. That was another big theory. Oh, he, he got on drugs. Well, you know, he obviously had his blood and everything else. And there was no, no drugs in his blood and none in Goldman, none in Nicole. So what, all that kind of stuff was crazy. With the but, timeline, uh, just real quick too, I think yeah. it's so important when you talk about Pablo Finvez, this is the only prosecution witness who's in the vicinity, the neighborhood where the murders happen at Bundy and saying, oh, right. I think it's 1015 where this plaintive whale uh, happens and we're going to use that as the timeline. All the other witnesses yeah. who live in that area, uh, folks like Denise Pilnack, yeah. who's on the phone yep. and says, hey, I kicked my friend out. She was on the computer and she has phone records and everything to log and say, I think yep. this happened close to like 1035 or something. And a couple that's yep. walking by at like 1025 and say, hey, I don't hear anything. Yep. I don't see anything. I think it's maybe later we don't see or it, there's no signs of a murder or struggle. Most of these right. people like Denise Pilnack. Uh, and Hadaistra, I think I'm mispronouncing his name, but he says the hey, hey, hey. Yeah, and yeah. he, uh, these people, many of them, they too think O.J. Simpson is guilty. It's not like they're coming exactly. forward to testify and say, oh, yeah, I think right. this happened at 1035 because I think the juice is innocent. That's not it at all. Right. They think it happened no. at 1035, but no. they still think right. O.J. did it, even though their testimony would tend to exonerate him. Just can you speak yep. to that, too? Yes, because all of them thought the same thing. All of them, including Laura with the tape, she thought he did it, you know, but I would go to people and one of the witnesses never came. I don't know if we talked about him, a guy named Tom Lang, uh, who was down, the, lives on Bundy, was walking his dog at 10 o'clock. He's really the last guy that, that ever saw these people alive other than the killer. He sees them at about 10 o'clock as he's walking up the street and his story I corroborated six ways to Sunday, you know, with his wife and the timing. And he heard some party noises. I found out there was a dinner party on Dorothy. I found those people that had the party that he's talking about. And, you know, he sees two people. He sees Nicole. He's the last one. And I remember saying to Lee back then, they were, everybody's quizzing about it. Johnny had misgivings about uh, Tom Lang because of, he saw a white Ford vehicle. I said, Johnny, I talked to this guy. He's he's he saw a white Ford F three fifty. It's much bigger than a Bronco. Well, he could have made a mistake. I said, Johnny, I did refer the background on the guy. He's owned eleven Ford vehicles. He knows a Bronco from a two fifty or three fifty or a one fifty. He knows it wasn't a Bronco, it was this. So that was kind of important. But Johnny made the call, we're not gonna use him because we're late in the trial. And all that stuff. I really lobbied to get this guy. But he was the same way. He was a guy that I finally, he called me finally. I left my card a number of times, met with his wife, met his wife. Here's my name. Here's my name. And he finally calls back. He says, come on out here. And so I go to his house and he says, you know what? I'm going to talk to you. 
He said, you're the only person to come to my house like a judge. You had a suit and tie on every time. You were very polite to my wife. I'm so sick of tabloid people and everybody banging on my door, blah, blah, blah. I said, well, you know, that's how I operate. And thank you for talking to me. And so we start talking. Now, I know his police report inside out. He starts telling me, well, I was walking. He said, do you want to see the I said, sure, let's walk. Let's do the whole thing. And so... We walk up, he shows me where he was, where he, he commanded his dog, et cetera. And we get back to his house. And I said, did the, did you tell this to the police? He said, yeah, but they, they didn't want to go on a walk with me, but yeah. And he's starting to tell me how, listen, your client, you know, he's got the cut finger. Come on now. You know, your client's guilty. I said, it doesn't matter. I, I wasn't there and you weren't there. Let, and you were there closer than I was, but let, all I want to know is the truth. So whatever you got to tell me the truth, I just fit it in. If it fits in the puzzle, great. If not, if it hurts us, it hurts us. That's the lawyer's problem, not ours. So he said, uh, no, I never saw my police report. So he describes her dress and all that. Oh, better than that. I, so I show him his police report. He said, that's not what I said. I didn't tell him it was a white dress because the police reports got him seeing Nicole in a blonde in a long white flowing gown. Well, she was wearing that black uh, uh, cocktail dress or the little short uh, dress that she had on the, the recital that she was found dead in. So he says, no, I didn't say that. And so I said, did they walk with you? Did you? No, they didn't want to walk with me. He said, and you know what? I took notes. And uh, I said, you took notes? He said, yeah, I took notes. You want to see him? I go, yeah, sure. So he gives me his notes that he wrote. I said, well, what made you write these down? He said, well, because when I got home the next day from work, I saw the police and everything and the town TV, the murder, and I remembered that night. So I wrote down uh, what I recalled with my wife. I said, well, here's what our, what happened. Now he can't get through to the LAPD for the same reasons nobody could get through to anybody. The phones are blown off hooks everywhere. So he says, uh, not only did I have these notes, the cop didn't want them. I said, well, could I have a copy? Yeah, he gives me a copy. And he says, you know, I went to my job the next day. I told my boss, a guy, Bill, something, I can't, his name escapes me right now. He's passed away. But my, his boss was a, a lawyer by trade, but he was the general manager of the, uh, I don't know, it was right there now, and the name escapes me, uh, a, a, a national hotel chain right there at the beach in Santa Monica. I don't know if it was a Ramada, not a Ramada Inn, but some kind of hotel right there. He says, no. So I went in and told my boss, and the boss says, well, listen, here's my tape recorder. Dictate your recollections. So now he does all of that. And, and does the same thing again, and they transcribe it. They get a court report, transcribe the thing. He says, you want that? I said, please. So I got all this. And, um, you know, he was pretty close on his details of what he saw and everything. And he saw, you know, Nicole. He couldn't see who was in this white uh, Ford F-350, but he said they were either embracing or pushing away. And we now know it must have been pushing away. They certainly weren't probably embracing. But he also saw, in his words, a man in an angry stance right in front of her gate. Describes this man as white, Asian, or Hispanic, but not African-American. So he also thought he saw somebody in the street. <clears throat> so it's telling me, and I told Lee this, I said, these people that he saw were not friends. 
because everybody in the world has come forward. We must have 500,000 people have come forward saying, oh, I knew this, I'm there, and there. Nothing about this scene that Tom Lang, and I don't think he's making this up, none of these people that he observed have come forward to say, oh, yeah, I, I was over at Nicole's at 10 o'clock, and, you know, and so I said, these got to be the guys. So we always, and there's more than one guy there, which fits with the uh, more than one murder, murderer. Uh, so that was so important to me anyway, as an investigator. And like you say, just like everybody else on Bundy, they thought he Simpson was guilty. But when you, you get people talking, you get, you know, and you corroborate what they're saying with their, and Denise is the best one, Denise Pilnack, because she actually has an official record. She has a phone record that corroborates her story with the time. Right. So, and Danny Mandel and Aronson, the, the two that were on a date from Metaluna, we, we had their receipt and then we, and we walked with them. Uh, we walked from Metaluna past there. They were very cooperative uh, a dozen times, you know, to try to figure out the time that they would have been in front of uh, Nicole's place. And uh, I forget the other people there. Uh, uh, the gal that was at the party. So I forget her. But, uh, oh, geez, just, I'm drawing a blank right now. But anyway, we had all these people that, as a cop, you could have, you could have, between them and Arnell and other people, you could have eliminated O.J. Simpson. And I've said this to a million people. Had this been Dan Marino or Joe Montana or some other famous white football player whose wife was murdered and you sat down and you came in and you gave him a full statement, you give him your blood, you give him a, uh, everything, they would have walked and they would have said, okay. And if you had, you know, uh, cops that knew what they I shouldn't say knew what they were doing, but cops that didn't have a racial angle like Furman in them, uh, you would have eliminated them and you should have eliminated Simpson, even though he should be your first potential suspect, but you could eliminate the guy and then start talking to these people like Tom Lang, what they look like, you know, get more detail. Uh, but no, they, they lost their minds when Furman went over the wall and came back out with the glove. If you recall Furman's Furman, basically when he says, I know where Simpson lives because he had been there before. They all go up there, all four lead detectives leave a murder crime scene and go up to quote, in their words, was to make a notification of next to kin. Well, you never do that. You pick a, some other poor cop has that duty to notify family of a, uh, uh, you know. So, but no, all the lead guys, they go up to Rockingham. And again, every time Furman leaves these guys for a couple of seconds, voila, evidence. So they're all standing there at the Ashford gate, beeping. Of course, no one's answering. Nicole, I mean, uh, Arnell's sleeping. She's not, the thing doesn't ring in her place. It's ringing in the main house. Furman leaves them. All of a sudden, hey, look what I found. There is blood on the Bronco. And they all go, you know, following over there. And it's dark and he's shining a flashlight. And before they know it, he's hopping the wall. And that story about, uh, you know, like they knew he was going to do all BS. He just hopped the wall and opened the gate. 
How did you come to that conclusion that that's a lie, that this was not some, hey, we think he's in danger and we all agree that he just, hey, I'm going to hop the wall and then they just have to sign on it afterwards? Yeah, that was all BS, please. That was, he jumped the wall. Now, you know, as you look back, you're making your story up. The police are making up a story about why they did this. They knew you can't go in there without a search warrant, but they did anyway. And they said, oh, we thought somebody was dead in there. So, you know, there's other injuries. And it's like, oh, now we have another murder scene or potential scene, which is, you know, just made up out of whole cloth. Again, now they hop the fence. Now they're going in there. They're looking for Arnell. They get Arnell. And so she comes around and says, oh, my God, she, you know, they love Nicole, too. I mean, it's like, Jesus. So they're, she's freaking out, crying and everything else. Where's your devil? He's in Chicago. And I don't I have a number. We have to call Kathy. He went to, he, he has a Hertz function. Of course, none of that's in the search warrant affidavit. They go, uh, Nicole, I mean, uh, Nicole, Arnell's told us meaning Ben Adder, that O.J. left in the middle of the night to play golf. Well, you know, that sounds ridiculous, right? When I first heard that, who who leaves their house and flies across the country to play golf in the next morning without, you know, it doesn't make sense. Well, I found out later when I talked to Hertz people, this was planned away in advance. Uh, So he didn't leave in the middle of the night. So when the judge, before he signed the search warrant, he said, wait a minute, how do you know that O.J. Simpson left just in the middle of the night. And they wrote because Arnell told us. So they, I forget what they were. Those were the, what we call the six lies that were in the search warrant affidavit. Again, uh, and that's after, oh, I skipped the part about they're in the house. They sit at the bar by the pool, ta- you know, in OJ's uh, kitchen and uh, pool table room, trophy room, all that. Uh, and they're sitting there, and of course, Furman leaves them, once again, leaves the three detectives. Phillip's on the phone calling O.J. at the O'Hare Plaza. Tom Lang and Ben Adder are talking to Arnell. Furman goes and finds Cato, thinks he's on drugs because Cato looks like, you know, has a goofball. What's he even doing there? So they're, you know, Furman's giving him a stigmas test and all that with the flashlight, thinks he's high. Here's about the three bunk bumps or thumps or whatever uh, <coughs> Cato says he heard. So Furman is not dumb. Furman is basically at his best at his craft, which is planting evidence on black defendants. He is a superb uh, planter of evidence on innocent black people and he had a couple of prior cases. So his mind is thinking, huh, let me go get that glove that I stuck in the Bronco. I thought we will this will catch later and go put it under the air conditioner. So that was when Lee cross examined him. I mean, just a BS story uh, that he went back there with his little flashlight and found this thing. He put it there, you know, and, and plus again, let's talk logically. So you're saying that Mark, that OJ Simpson kills these two people, gets rid of everything, knives, the murder weapons, the most important stuff, all the clothes, and brings a glove back to his own home and then says, oh, what a, I hide it inside the house. And he bumps into the air conditioner, not once, not twice, three times. Well, O.J. would probably, as a former running back, if he hit the air conditioner, probably would have ducked the second time. He wouldn't have hit it twice and then backed up and ran into it the third time, okay, in his own property. So it was just to us insane that that's your theory this is 
insane. It's far more uh, logical that that glove got, because there's nothing else there. He's, his house, the carpeting in there is, was white through most of the place, up the stairway and everything. There was no blood in this house. That crap about all this blood and all that stuff. There was nothing. I found some drop that he even admits. Well, I think I nicked myself and got a little. And they make it like there's this trail of blood from this crime scene, which was really nuts. Uh, but so that to me, that I was always focused on Furman. And again, it was my only case at the time. So I, I spent like you know, every night of a year out there on Bundy, out there rocking, listening, watching, just for noises. And, you know, I took OJ's girlfriend. Uh, she also had a Bronco. OJ's was in custody. Uh, uh, AC Collins's, uh, I think was in, I forget whose car was where, but Paula had one. I used to drive that thing, see how fast I could get from Bundy to, uh, the Rockingham and OJ told me the fastest way to get there. Remember, we had the girl that said, "Oh, I saw him in AC." Oh, Jill Shively, Jill. Sh- that's the one. They wheel her out about every other year. OJ Simpson <laughs> ran me off the road. He just killed yeah. Nicole and Ron, and then right. he ran me off the road right. trying to race right. home. And I just like, do, do right. you find any credibility in her story at all? No, do I? Hell no. And and it was like well wait a minute if that really happened where are the people that almost had this accident this is the 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 most notorious thing on television worldwide if you almost had an accident with a white bronco at san vicente and bundy at 11 o'clock or whatever time she was saying uh you know they would have come forward there was no evidence of that she had people on the sidewalk that saw this according to her that woman is a complete liar and uh I actually, she she snookered one of the best, at least I thought it was, a big law firm out there, Marty Singer and whatever that firm is that, that uh, I shouldn't say Marty because I'm not sure it was him, but there was a, a firm that, was going, that threatened to sue uh, this guy that had done a website about Jill Shively. And so I remember calling the lawyer and said, I got this complaint because the guy gave it to me. He says, could you help me with this? I said, sure. So I called the guy. I'm thinking, you know, I'm calling a good law firm. I say, hey, here's who I am. Bah, bah, bah. Uh, and I think this woman made up this complaint because it was really crap, crappy. It wasn't put together well. Like, you know, I'm working with lots of big law firms, and that goes through six guys before it goes out the door. You know, before it goes to a judge, it's proofed and edited and you know all that sort of stuff he goes no no, no that's that's my client and i said well you got you must have got snookered this woman's a liar well we th- and he's getting a little aggressive you guys i said no us guys didn't do anything this woman inserts herself dr phil dr joe everywhere she can get on tv and they make a big dramatic scene with her and we and in this website that this friend of mine put together uh, uh, Brian Heiss, he really lays it out well. She's just a, a crazy lunatic. And by the way, she's sitting in the office telling this story when a, another detective walks down the hall and sees her and says, what are you talking to her for? I locked her. She's crazy. She's uh, She sued some actor. She swindled some guy out of 250 grand. Uh, some, I don't know all these Hollywood actors and stuff, but she had swindled someone. 
And so they threw her out. And of course, Marcia says, well, she sold her story to the Enquirer. That's why we didn't use her at the grand jury. I'm thinking, well, you used uh, Hector Camacho and the other guy, not Hector, that's the boxer, Camacho and the other guy from Ross Cutlery. They sold their story for 12-5 to the National Enquirer. You put them in front of the grand jury. So spare me your uh, sanctimonious uh, uh, crap about we didn't call her because she had sold her story. Okay, uh, they realized she was full of shite, and and they didn't. That's why they didn't use her. Oh, I've, I got along with Marsha. I used to bust her chops all the time about this in breaks and stuff. I, you know, and still do. And last time I talked to her, I kind of still like to break her shoes a little bit about that. She curses me out. And, uh, Marsha Clark conceded uh, in her book that Jill Shively was a liar. In fact, she can see she makes it very yep. explicit in saying that she yep. didn't knowingly give false testimony to the grand jury, but after the fact, she realized that she did because Jill, she concedes Jill Shively is not a credible yeah. witness. It's not just because she got money uh, for selling her story to hard copy or whatever the tabloid was, but yep. it's because exactly yep. what you said. She has a history uh, of swindling people and just lying and making up things like, oh, yeah. she probably didn't see this not going to bring her up in trial like woof this could be I mean it's right. way beyond just she sold money she is not credited sure. it's lots of this just having people that are totally not credible who are just making up things to push along this totally goofy narrative that OJ Simpson went and hacked up these people in the house where his children were asleep uh, that he hacked them up and raced across town and did all this in like five minutes and buried the knife and shit. I mean, it's crazy. Yeah. It's totally. And it I'm even crazy. more embarrassed because I used to be one of the people who believed this. It took us literally up until weeks ago, we started reading Jeffrey Tubin's book who also says right. OJ Simpson did it. So we're not even reading a book. That's, yeah. You know, yeah. He, he didn't do I it. I don't feel too bad because I'm just like you. I thought he was guilty when I got hired. Okay. So when, uh, so when I go out there, all I know is what I've seen on television and in the media. Yeah. I'm thinking, oh, my God, we got problems here. A boy is, you know, and then when I finally see him at the jail, I still wanted to, you know, because we're hearing like everybody else, oh, OJ's uh, uh, socks are on the floor with Nicole's blood in them. Thank God we were able to pull all that together and, and find out that I think his name was Willie Ford, who was the videographer. That, uh, you know, because OJ sees these crime sets. Remember, I took the pictures out there. He's going nuts. What is this? I My socks weren't on the floor. My bed wasn't all unmade. Uh, you know, Gigi gets my stuff. I put it all, you know, he has a whole routine. And I used to travel a lot doing my work. And I kind of related to this routine. You know, you pack at the last minute, uh, just like he did. And you get tired of getting on planes and all that sort of stuff. But, you know, the sock, to me, was another, that's a bigger plant than the glove. We know Furman did the glove, but the sock was to to add, you know, for them. And if you look at the timing of this sock story, uh, his OJ, like he said, and Gigi the maid confirms that he takes his clothes off, throws them in the hamper, takes his, he lays out the clothes he's going to wear, gets out of the shower, puts those on, his dirty clothes or whatever, uh, and and he had played golf that day. I don't think he threw it. I think he hung his, uh, he had dockers or docksiders. I forget the, you know, gap or some kind of pants that uh, 
he wore for golf. He hung those back up because he only played golf in them. But his socks and everything else he threw in the hamper. When he saw this picture, he's going, what, what is this? This is a crap. And so they kind of, I think they made it look like the room was a little disheveled, you know, to add to the whole well, he had to be running. Or he, he has no time. So let's make it look like, geez, he threw stuff everywhere. The, the house is a mess and all that. And it's just stuff they did that you don't do. You know, it's, it's uh, you know, you're not seen, evidently. So they don't realize that, oh, wait a minute. You know, we're doing all this. But the next morning, the first guy on the scene is a videographer. And that stuff is in the, ha- <coughs> pardon me, it's not on the floor. Okay, so that stuff got thrown on the floor after the videographer who's in there to preserve everything as it is, you know, and and document it and film it and all that. So so we have that sort of behavior. And listen, this is no different in my this is my opinion than than the guy that kneeled on the guy's neck in Minnesota. This was Mark Furman tried to kneel on Simpson's neck. And but he didn't kill him. He tried to, uh, and and they kind of went on. And cops, I shouldn't say all cops. I don't want anybody to think I'm saying all cops. But they tend to believe the detectives. And and all of a sudden, this was every, the whole, well, read the backs of the books and the I thank you this and that. Tom Lang, these they had LAPD, the New York PD, the FBI. They had everybody in law enforcement hoping to put a hat on O.J. Simpson. I mean, I, speaking of books, we, I just finished a book with Lee Bailey. It'll come out in June. Hope your readers put that in their book club because you'll see that not only do we talk about all this in better detail than I am right now, but we have a website that you could say, uh, oh, the sock, for example. So uh, we have a whole timeline of the sock, and you can go click on it and see the grand jury testimony and or the police reports. But the SOC, for example, was, was, was taken in by the LAPD crime lab. So there's a report from them with a date in June. Uh, no blood was observed. It's even written in one of the reports, no blood observed on this SOC. Wow. It was looked at by our people, Henry Lee, Michael Bodden, um, Barbara Wolf. It was also looked at by the California crime lab. No one observed blood. It was never sent to the FBI. And yet in September, uh, it comes out that Nicole's blood is all over the sock. And remember the place was, I mean, it was like, Oh, you know, every in the court, Oh, you know? And, uh, so we're going nuts. Going, what are you talking about? And to me, it was another, you know, they portrayed us as being against the police. And we were trashing the police. And uh, for those old enough to remember, everybody ran around L.A. with blue ribbons on in support of the police, right? Uh, and and all we were dirty people trying to mess with beautiful, honorable police officers, which... You know, we only had two that we were looking at that we really thought were dirty, and Furman was the main one. But, but uh, with this, the timing of this report was Tracy Savage from NBC, who we learned later was having an affair with uh, Gascon, the, the flack for the police department. And so Marsha steps up in court and says, that's impossible. It hasn't even been sent to the FBI lab yet, right? 
So it can't be true. So what happens the next day, NBC, again, we have gone back to our sources and we can confirm that Nicole's blood is on that sock. And we're all going, well, how do you know it hasn't been tested yet? Well, the reason they knew is we think that someone told Gascon, whoever planted that, and we we had our suspicions that it was... uh, uh, Michelle Kessler, because she was also, she was married to a robbery homicide detective, so it was kind of a us against them war, with them being in the police and law enforcement, and everybody else uh, saying that us, the defense team, were these slimy people that were just slipping and sliding and trying to do something. We had, you know, a bunch of the best lawyers in the country, and everybody's working hard, and and uh, we didn't pull any stunts. You talk about stunts. Christ, I could write a whole book just on the uh, stunts that the prosecution and the cops did in this case. But that sock, to me, was greater evidence. And it happened, the timing of that was the day after, if I recall, I'm cl- I'm, I know I'm close on this, I might not be specific, but when Edo uh, denied the motion to suppress, we tried to get the gloves impressed. And he denied it, but he did say that Ben Adder had a complete disregard for the truth, which is basically saying you're an effing liar. Okay. Mm. And so they went nuts, and we felt, we used to think that someone got so ag- aggravated at us, the defense, that they salted up that sock and then leaked the gas gun. Hey, because he doesn't know, he's a, he's a PR guy. Uh, Nicole's blood's on the stock. He goes to his girlfriend, Tracy Savage. She goes on TV and tells this whole story and uh, and uh, then confirms it the second day. So to me, it was like she had to go back and say, Jesus, they're saying it didn't happen. T- he had to go to whoever planted that or whoever told him that, and they said, Nicole's blood is on the sock. That's my theory, and it's a lot better than their theory, which was O.J. Simpson was wearing the dress socks that he wore to the recital and those crazy Bruno Mali story and uh, whatever else and got rid of everything except came home and put the socks in the dryer, I mean, in the hamper. Oh, geez, I could go for hours on the insanity as an investigator anyway <laughs> of how this case got away and then... You know, I had no idea that the whole world, the world, the white world, and probably a lot of black people, too, that I had friends with say uh, that they thought Simpson was guilty, you know. And uh, it just, <coughs> excuse me, it was the narrative of uh, the media, frankly. And, you know, basically, like Tubin, Jeffrey and I got along great. I mean, we've been to dinner a few times, lunch, because, you know, a lot of reporters would want to go to lunch. Talk to him, and I go, the guy didn't do it. Oh, come on, Pat. What do you got? I go, well, you're going to see in trial. But I always said the same thing. He didn't have time. He didn't have time to kill the two people. What about the blood? You know, and I would never, I just say the guy didn't have time. And frankly, 26 years later, it's the same. The man did not have, he had 22 minutes to pull this off, and it cannot be done. And then hide everything to never be found ever again. Uh, and so, but Jeffrey and I many a time go out. And when he was writing his book, he came to Florida. He wanted to talk. He did a long interview. I gave him or showed him Pablo Fenev's 
two screenplays that have plaintiff whale. Jeffrey kind of, well, you know, uh, you know, he, you know, his mind's made up that Simpson did it. Just like every Dan Abrams, everybody out there that I kind of was friends with all said the same thing. You know, you guys are doing a great job, but this guy did it. You know, I know he did it. You know, I mean, how do you know he did it? No, Dan Abrams said that. He just said, I just did a podcast with, uh, I was the only defense person to agree to go on Kim Goldman's. Oh, podcast. that's right. And, that's right. And, you know, I, we were, you know, I, to be, just to cover my butt, I had my end of it taped here. You know, I had uh, my secretary put a camera on a tripod just because I knew I was going to get chopped up. Why? Wow, you were the only person happened, taking the perspective that Mr. Simpson was innocent on, on uh, Kim Goldman's yeah. podcast? Yep. Wow. And, and, uh, and I said, you know, you're not going to like what I got to say to her producer, I think Nancy Glass or Glassman or something. Nancy Glass Productions. I said, but I'll do it. And it was arranged by a guy that I know that's a PR type guy. I think it was Goldman's PR person, mm. uh, Michael Wright, who I've met <laughs> on a number of high profile homicide cases because I got the homicide defendant. And he's usually representing the family. So I've met him a number of times and he's the one that kind of arranged it. He said, no, McKenna's all right guy. He's done this other, uh, other cases and he's, you know, he does the right thing or whatever they said. I don't know. So, and I remembered saying to her, she said something like, I don't think this made it either, because I know I talked to her for, God, an hour and a half, and I think I'm on there for 12 minutes. But she said something about, uh, well, I don't want this to be confrontational. And I remember saying, Kim, when it comes to O.J. Simpson, I ain't afraid of comp- confrontation. But I got to tell you, I'm bored with it, because no one wants to li- everybody wants to believe two and two is nine. And I'm now to the point, it's like, have a nice day. If you want to believe that, you can. I'm not going to argue with it anymore. Just like I don't argue with people that won't wear a mask. It's the two categories. I say I'm not talking to these people. Or at least I'm not arguing with them. But I, you know, Kim was at least kind enough to give me an hour and a half. She didn't like what I had to say. Uh, and then I think after it was over, because I think I had it somewhere, and they're, and they're going, "Oh, this guy's bonkers." Yeah, I was never bonkers. I mean, if I'm bonkers. I don't know how the hell I keep getting good work with some of the best lawyers in the country. Uh, but, you know, and I want to say, Kim, you should really be, you know, pissed off at Mark Furman. Mm-hmm. And some of the because they really let your family down. And I have nothing but, I guess, sympathy or empathy for a murder victim's family. I don't know how I'd, I'd probably be crazy. You know, I'd be <laughs> jumping across the railing and punching people if it was my kid that was killed. So I understand the rage and all that, but if you do a critical look at this and go back and say, well, your, your boyder took the Fifth Amendment. Nobody on our team mm-hmm. took the Fifth Amendment. He took the Fifth Amendment. They make it like even Tom, I've seen Tom, uh, who I always got along with during the case, Tom Lang, say, yeah, we were mad he took the Fifth Amendment. They were all pissed off at Furman for taking the Fifth. Well, why do you think he did it? I've never been in a case where the detective came to the stand with a criminal defense lawyer standing next to the witness box telling him, you ain't answering anything, okay? So when I say that to people, they go, well, I don't remember that. I go, well, go look at the <laughs> I don't remember and, that. <laughs> yeah. And Furman, and they all knew 
that I was doing Furman, right? And after his, Lee crossed him, and all the stories, oh, Bailey Fall lost his fastball, Furman was great, blah, blah, blah. Well, we, we didn't know about the tapes. The tapes came in July. That was kind of like just, you know, I've got most of my work done. I'm still working out there, and I, I got this little, you know, tip. And I used to follow up. Well, I didn't get a tip. I used to get like a million a day. We had made a chart at Johnny's office because they were overwhelmed with phone calls coming in. So we'd make a chart. Joe Blow calling. Here's his phone number. Here's what he does. For, and here's what he's got to say. Well, so, and God bless her, Jan, the receptionist there. She would write everybody down. And so I would go through this chart every day. Sometimes it'd be 12, 18 pages of names and numbers. And, you know, when you say, this lady here, she's a psychic. I don't need to go any further. That's I don't follow that call. <laughs> and this one and that one. But I would follow calls for anything to do with Furman or planting evidence or anything. You get a call from, say, I remember a doctor saying, and, and, and uh, my own doctor that just did a surgery on me for uh, skin cancer. We, it, it was in the office, and the girl was taking gauze and putting the blood it was in my chest so she'd keep putting the blood in the thing and he he followed the case he gives me grief all the time about dna and blood and all that stuff and i i said there's more blood in in the garbage can right here and you are very very uh uh protected here you're wearing the shields on your face and it's very controlled and the little incision and you're dabbing and 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 lasering and closing the cut and all that stuff and look at the blood that's in this garbage can compared to a few nanograms of Simpsons, which was far more uh, uh, consistent with a planting than it was a guy just stabbed two people to death. He had blood in his eyelashes, for God's sake. And, and uh, so I'd take calls like that, you know, from doctors saying, oh, uh, I'm an OBGYN. We do a cesarean section. And, oh, my God, we everybody's got gowns and masks and and it's very controlled, and yet there's we have blood on our shoes. We have it everywhere. You know, so there were a lot of people that would call in, and I would kind of give calls back to those folks, say who I was, thank you for your information. And then I got the Furman stuff, you know. And uh, trust me, I got stuff about Furman every day. <clears throat> but I, a lot of it would be crazy, so I wouldn't follow up. What do you mean? Uh, Wait a minute. You said a lot of it would be crazy. Crazy like what? Well, crazy like uh, uh, I was with Furman that night. You know, we were on a break at the hotel. And, you know, he told me he was going to do, you know, just stuff that, you know. I was I was somewhere with Mark Furman, and he told me he did it. You know, stuff like that. Uh, but but those kind of crazy. Trust me, if you knew how many crazies called in, it used to be a joke, you know, because I was the guy that had to deal with them all. Everybody else was in court, and... Uh, you know, there were guys who would come to Johnny's office. It got to the point where I wouldn't bring them back anymore. I'd just sit out in the lobby because there were just too many kooks. I didn't want these people back in Johnny's office. But but uh, I remembered the Furman call, or the, I mean the uh, tapes, and uh, the way it went down, it's a little different than the, than the movie that Jeff did. But the actual way it went down was, I see this call, and if it said planting evidence... And then the N-word. Those were the calls I would follow up on. So I'd follow up on this call. And uh, I called. A man answers the phone. I go, and this is late in the game. This is like almost at the end of the trial. And I go, 
My name is Pat McKenna. Dead silence. I figured by now, I mean, we've been in Time Magazine all over the planet, our names everywhere. So it's nothing. I go, okay. Um, is Laura there? And he goes, well, Laura, and now this guy's in North Carolina. I said, this is Pat McKenna. I'm, I'm in Los Angeles. I was calling, is Laura there? No, she's at the store. She'll be back in 15. Can you take my name and number? Sure. So all I had was her name. And somewhere I still got the scrap of yellow paper that I was writing this note on because I had so many scraps of paper. I mean, you know, just trying to write everything down. I didn't have like a real organized uh, legal pad every day in my hand. So I'd have scraps of paper and I had a yellow legal sheet and, and I had the area code, I think it was 707. And I remembered, I'd make my own little notes, Raleigh, question mark, because by then I know the area codes every place in the freaking country. And so 404 was whatever, Georgia and 410. So I write Raleigh, question mark, and I kind of leave it alone. And back then, I had an office in the back in Johnny's office. And so they had not caller ID, but they had a little thing that would give you the number that was calling in. This is 94, so you didn't have really. But you would have the number, and I see the same number. So I get, you know, I get my pen and paper ready and all that. I pick up the phone, and uh, all I have is a first name. And the answer is, oh, and before this happens, the guy that left the tips was telling me she's going to refer you to her lawyer who's in Los Angeles. But she has these tapes. You need to listen to them. Uh, and I remember writing, I think Tubin puts this in his book, that because he's telling me the story about planting evidence he uses the N-word niggers, and then I forget the third thing. And I didn't realize that I kept with my pen. So the word niggers has come. I've written over it six times, you know, because it was just something unconscious I'm writing, thinking, you know, that was important. I want to hear this. So anyway, she calls, hi, it's Laura Hart McKinney. Boom, I write down Hart McKinney. And I remember saying, this is different the way TV, it sounded like I was a little confrontational, the actor that played me or whatever. I wasn't at all. I said, my name is Pat McKenna. I'm a private investigator. I got a tip that you had tapes on Mark Furman. I said, in my heart of hearts, I believe this man's innocent. And just give me a two seconds. And I was on the phone with her quite a while. And by the time I got done, she agrees that she would have her lawyer call me and, uh, and that was about it. Minutes later, I get a call from, uh, I think the lawyer was Matt Schwartz and Ron Reguan in Los Angeles. So, and then I meet them and I talk to them and they're saying, no, she's got these tapes. We've heard these tapes. You probably, and they don't know who I am. They're not knowing if I'm who I say. I, mean, I said, well, listen, let me do that. They said, we want a letter from Johnny. I said, well, Johnny, this is eight o'clock at night. I said, Johnny's gone. I think Carl's in the other. Uh, Carl or Sean are still here. Carl Douglas and Sean Chapman. One of them's probably still here. I go to Carl's office. And, and if you knew Carl, you know, me and Carl had a great, uh, a, a great relationship. And he'd look at, I go, Carl, I got a hot one. I think uh, I got some stuff on Furman. Pat, I got this to do. Please leave me some time. You know, I said, Can I, the lawyer from Los Angeles says he's heard the tapes. I got no time. I said, do you mind if I dictate a letter to uh, uh, Carmen, that was his secretary, and for your signature? Sure, just go do it. So I dictate this letter. Hi. You know, this is Carl. I wrote it in Carl's name. said, Pat McKenna's our investigator, but please cooperate. And then we faxed it over. And, of course, back then, 
I grabbed everything, you know, like back in those days, you put a fax and it came out with a confirmation. So I've got all my ends. I'm making a whole file because I'm starting to, you know, get a little excited. Maybe there is something here. And, uh, and so that was the beginning of it. And then I frankly didn't want to even hear these because I didn't want to be them in my hands or anything. Cause I said, well, if this is real, they're going to leak this shit. Whoops. Excuse me. I mean, to swear on your show, they're going to leak this. I'd, I've already been accused by Shapiro of leaking everything, even though I never did leak anything. So I didn't want to be accused of leaking. So I, I sit back and the lawyers took over Johnny and them. And I remember uh, having lunch with Jerry Allman the next day, Johnny wanted me meet with Jerry, tell him how this all went down. And, you know, so lawyers can have the whole, uh, timeline of how it happened so they're getting their motion ready i remember jerry saying pat this is like manna from heaven and i'll never forget that he said this is manna from heaven and i'm thinking well yeah it's good but we've already crushed these people i mean this jury should be out in two minutes you know because i'm very confident that we've shown that simpson couldn't have done it. i'm not watching tv every night you know uh and all the shows so that's how that thing went down and you know, the kind of the rest is history. I finally met Laura and her husband when they came to L.A. And she's a lovely lady, but she felt horrible uh, thinking that she was the reason Simpson got acquitted. And I remember saying to afterwards to I think a TV producer was trying to do a show on the tapes and they want they were interviewing. Her and he said, well, she's just overwhelmed with guilt that she got. I said, no, no, no. Tell her this. This will assuage her guilt. These tapes really were nothing compared to what we already had. We had this guy commit and purge, and we got everything. We got the timeline. I was so confident we were going to win that the, the tapes were just, like, extra. And so, you know, lo and behold, we that big fight and all that, and we get the tapes. And, and frankly, most of America's never listened to these tapes uh, unless they were listening to the trial that day. But if you, I have them all. When you listen to this over and over again, and during the trial when Ito's playing these, of course he doesn't let the jury hear him. I remember walking around Johnny's office, and um, all of his employees, all the women at all the desks were women of color, mm-hmm. black or brown, etc. And of course they all loved me. I was always goofing and cutting up and all that stuff when it was time to do that. It was serious when it would be serious, but you know I have a good person now running around. I remember walking around, you could hear a pin drop in there and the looks on these people's faces was heartbreaking to me. Uh, and they would look at me, Pat, just like Pat, just with a question, like couldn't even get the question out of their mouth. But it dawned on me. I said, yeah, they, this isn't surprising to them. It's surprising that this guy's on tape doing this, but these are folks that probably interact with cops all the time. And it's, you know, nothing unusual. Now, look, 26 years later, nothing's changed. I mean, nothing's really changed except it's worse. And uh, in, in, uh, it always pisses off my white uh, cop friends when I say this because they're like, well, you always bring up race. And I go, because in 46 years, it's in my face every day uh, defending African-Americans or Latinos or whatever and then seeing cops come in and because it's not Simpson, they get away with this a lot, uh, you know, and put their hand on a Bible and look that jury right in the eye with their uniform crisply pressed on there, say, no, here's that, 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 and, and juries go for it. And 
And that's why we now have, I don't know how many people exonerated off a of death row, and there's millions, probably more, or hundreds of thousands or whatever, that have been spending untold years for something they didn't do. I mean, I have two or three right now that, uh, you know, I got one today that's a 1968 murder. Wow. I said, geez, I was, I was in Vietnam when this case happened. You know, and the, and the kid, the, the lawyer, he wasn't even born yet. And yet, you know, they uncovered in an old DA's file all kinds of Brady material. That It's ballistics. It's too long a story to get into. So I'm, like, jacked up about this case. Uh, but this guy's been in custody since 68. How many years? That's 50 years. He could be one of my, uh, you know, longest. I've got a couple others that have spent 30 years and 40 years. And it's just so scary because every time I get this, I think back of, you know, 30 years and what's, what my life has been. Okay. A couple of children, a couple of grandchildren, freedom, ball games, fun, this and that. And these people have missed out on a whole lifetime of experiences because of some son of a bitch that got on the stand, put his hand up and lied. And then, you know, the prosecutor went along with it. And, uh, you know, friends, I talk a lot. I say, you know, you know how hard it is to convict an innocent man? Everybody's got to be on the same page. The cops, the prosecutors, the media, uh, the judge, okay? So the only reason, for example, O.J. or Casey Anthony, these people that have juries that are sequestered, they're not listening to that crap on TV. So they sit and they listen to the evidence and they pay attention. They go, man, I don't think so, not guilty. And then the people go nuts and and bitch about yours, but uh, mm, with I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm off on a tangent here, so it gets me so jacked up sometimes talking about this stuff. It should, <laughs> it me. should. With it, it does. I mean, you know, um, with you I know, guess with like, the Furman tapes, I, I wanted to to go back to something that she said because I sure. thought that was so important. Uh, and I guess for okay. listeners, too, if you all have a question that you want to ask Mr. McKenna, 720-716-7300, the code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you have a question. Uh, Mr. F. Lee Bailey, when he was with us, with us a few weeks back, I think he said uh, yeah. that out of all of his years practicing the law and illustrious victories and what have you, I think he said that that was his uh, proudest moment or at least one of them. I think he said his proudest moment, though, was uh, getting sure. Mark Furman, uh, getting him to convicted of perjury with that exchange and lying about saying yeah. nigger and all that. He said that was one of his proudest moments. And he even said, like, for a double murder to have a police officer convicted of perjury who is the star witness like are you kidding like <laughs> that is like some yeah. perry mason but with the audio i like i thought oj simpson was guilty i said sure. repeatedly if you had asked me like just maybe two months ago if you had asked me like okay guess yeah. what do you know about mark Furman? i would have said oh okay oj yeah. simpson trial uh nigger that's about it like okay give me yeah. some more details like what did he do what did he say yeah. i couldn't have told you anything like i had not heard any right. excerpts from the Furman tapes the audio like nothing and when we started reading the book and going over it i think most people had not heard any of the tapes and then when i started to research mm -hmm. uh, and they said hey 
nobody, like none of the major publications, the New York Times, the LA Times, right. none of them reproduced the unedited versions nope. of what was said. Nope. None of the major networks nope. like replayed. Like if, as you say, if you were not watching that day in court when the jury that wasn't day. there, if you didn't hear it, yep. tough nuggies, you have not heard yep. the unedited. And I mean, just in terms of how Mark Furman has been totally sanitized, where you'll oh. see him on top. Just can you talk about that Absolutely. in terms of how he's been cleaned up over the past quarter century? Well, yeah, because it's 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 because everybody wanted to be clean and feel like, oh, we got robbed. These guys got away. The black jurors. I mean, I remember uh, an author saying to me, uh, well, Pat, you know, those those fat black ladies got him off and i said well don't you mean those niggers on the jury is that that's what you're saying to me you're not saying those fat first of all that ain't what got him off you know and i, and I had a big fight with him but but Furman, yeah was totally sanitized more than anybody uh on fox news and everything else but i i haven't I was friends with Dominic Dunn because he covered many cases that I was on the Kennedy case and all that. He's always against them, but yeah, I get along with people. So we became friendly. He probably just wanted to befriend me to see if he could, you know, talk and kind of, and I'm just a straight shooter. I just say, well, here's what, here's what I think. And so when it came to the OJ, I see him out there again and we became somewhat friendly and talkative and all that. And I know he hated the client and, uh, he got Furman a book deal, right, on the, the other Kennedy situation, the Skagel case. And that, well, first he got him the book deal, Murder in Brentwood. Okay. So I think they were tight. But you know, here's the story. I don't know if a lot of people know this. When OJ was in Vegas on that fiasco, Dominic Dunn apologized to him for his over the top coverage. Uh, in the murder trial, even though he still thinks O.J. was guilty. But I always said, I told Kathy, O.J.'s secretary, I said, I know what happened here because I've had dinner with Dominic many a time. I know that he must have got so close to Furman that he realized what kind of person Furman was. Furman probably relaxed with him just like he did with Laura Hart because you can't, you don't change, right? You don't change yourself. Uh, And uh, you know, they they just sanitized him, and, and I think Dominic Dunn had his fill with the guy, realized what he had, and he apologized to O.J., and, you know, Furman just struts around like a sanctimonious peacock with his chest out like he did nothing wrong, and we are still scumbags, and there's all this evidence, and blah, 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 and and frankly, it's just, it's, it's, uh, it's sad because he... I don't care if he makes a million bucks or whatever, but it was sad to see like Fox news, but now we know what Fox news is. And, uh, geez, can you imagine if they were in existence back then, how they would have crucified Furman? But, you know, they put this guy on TV and, and basically, you know, stand for him or stand behind him. And the guy's terrific guts. If you had the time, to listen to all these tapes, you'd be sick to your stomach. You can't believe. And this isn't what he said. It was a, a role for a movie or some shit. They tried to say that he was, uh, sorry, I cussed again. This is only the least amount of cussing I've ever done. on an interview. Uh, but his, his story was he was play acting for a movie. 
Okay. And if, and I've done this with a, with a class of uh, college kids that I give a uh, talk to. And I walked up and, and I said, uh, well, first of all, you guys don't know me and you probably never see me again, but I think all fucking niggers ought to be put in a pile and burned. And you should, you could hear a pin drop. I go, you'll remember that, won't you? And you'll remember me forever for saying that. But when Furman did it and Kathleen Bell heard it, and these are people that don't, the guy's a stranger. You can't imagine someone coming up like nowadays after last week. I mean, a lot of people, you know, they won't surprise you anymore. But back then when someone comes up and says stuff like that to you, not knowing your value system or anything, you'll never forget that. You'll go, oh, my God. Did you hear what this guy just said? You know, it's not, you'll go home, you'll lay awake at night. I don't care who you are. Uh, and he did that. And, and yet they wanted to trash Kathleen Bell. They wanted to trash all of our Furman witnesses as if they were making this up. And like I say, the, the tapes came so late in the game. I, I'm sitting here in my home looking at all these binders tapes Furman. And, uh, you know, because I had all this stuff out in my house to help Lee with this book. Uh, and it's, I go back through this again. I go, holy cow, this is just, you find new stuff every time I'm going in there, you know, and you just can go on and on about, holy cow, this poor guy. I wonder what was going through Simpson's head every day. And I know what his family were thinking because I was very tight with them. We, you know meet at the homes afterwards and all that. And they were just distraught and happy that things are going on. But just to think about being locked up, you're on top of the world. You're making more money than you ever made. You're, you're loved by all of America. And all of a sudden you're thrown in jail for 16, I think it was 16 and a half months that he was in jail for. And he had to be thinking, you know, not so much race, but it hit him when Furman took the fifth. And I remember watching him on TV. Because he used to say, OJ, you know what? You're on TV eight hours a day in a defendant's chair. You look like a defendant. There are people, by now, they're all saying the guy did it. And uh, I thought he handled himself very well. And then uh, I thought he was about ready to choke up when Furman got off the stand after taking the fifth because it had to hit him like, you know what? If these guys wouldn't have found out this stuff, I'd be like just some kid in the public defender's office. I'd have been convicted, shipped off to prison, and spent the rest of my life saying I didn't do it. And that's what, you know, the criminal justice system, if you think about it, it's still to this day, courts, cops, police, jails, it's all controlled by white people. Okay. And the majority, and there's so many black people that are in jail that didn't do anything. And I, Lord knows, cause I've defended a bunch of them. And I still got cases like this and he can almost prove it, but yet you're banging your head against the wall because, you know, they bar you for a time reason or, you know, they don't care about the truth. They go, Oh, you didn't meet this timeline, you know? So your motions denied. And, and, and it's just so sad to, to, well, you know, spend your whole life, not that my life hasn't been sad, but I mean, it's sad to see this your whole life. And when you try to talk to people about it, especially in my world, white people, they think I'm nuts, you know, until you have a chance to sit and talk. I now am the most popular guest at any sort of Christmas party or dinner party. Everybody says, oh, I want to sit next to McKenna next year, not just for OJ, but another other cases. And people just don't realize uh, 
because they're not in the court system. And so they see something on TV and it's just like, oh, yeah, can you think of the names of various people? Oh, lock him up. Or, you know, this guy's guilty and all that stuff. And, and when it hits your own family, I mean, it's not gratifying. But when I'm sitting with somebody's family and uh, they're saying my son's innocent and, uh, you know, my son... He wouldn't do something like that. He let all these niggers off. We killed three people and he get 12 months. I've had these people say stuff. I mean, I've had people say that to me, right? But their son uh, should get bail and should get this and that. I, I want to kind of not laugh in their face because they're in a very uh, tough situation. So I try to have empathy, but it's kind of like, you know, you don't understand white privilege. You know, you think that... And I'm talking about people that have done some bad things, white people, you know, their family's going, well, you know, why, why, why is my son getting this? Why does he have to take this plea 11 months? He didn't do, I mean, he didn't do anything. He hit the guy, so he broke the guy's job. I mean, eh. and you, you hear it, and it's, it's funny. It's not funny. I shouldn't use that word. But it's interesting that so many people over my career have said to me, sat there with family members and say, you know, my kid's a good kid. And you look at the crime and you go, well, he's, he made a bad move. He's a good kid, but he's done a bad thing here. And we got we got some problems to get your kid, you know, out of this jam. And, and you always get the same thing, you know, or lawyers will say, oh, this guy here. I've had lawyers hire me, good lawyers, say bring me in on a case over and over and every time i'm introduced to the family this one lawyer says this is the only white guy in america i think so you know he starts with oh he did oj simpson cave he names all the clients you know over the years and he, by the way he's the only white guy it's like it's funny he's the only white guy who thinks simpson's innocent and and i want to say but it's always the first interview and stuff and and uh but I want to say, if I'm such a crackpot, what do you hire me over and over and over again for your wealthy white uh, Johnnies and Julies that got a pound of methamphetamine that they flew in on a private jet from the Bahamas and they're wondering why they're looking at 10 to life in the federal system, you know? So it's just, uh, it's just, I don't know how to describe it. You know, it's just kind of sad and uh, it, it's, you know, stuff I talk to my kids about. I go, you know, just, you know, because people say, hey, Megan, your dad's crazy. You know, my daughter had all that crap during high school when when I was on this case. And uh, just sad to see. And God only, I, I'm in a little tiny port in the, uh, a dot in the ocean of the probably injustices in this country. And we're supposed to have the best uh, system, you know? And, uh, uh, anyway, <laughs> I better get off this soapbox. But well, uh, let me nab one of our callers for you, uh, Mr. McKenna, oh, okay, good, a good. caller in New okay. Jersey. Did you have a question for Patrick J. McKenna, uh, one of the investigators for the O.J. Simpson defense team? Did you have a question, sir? Hey, how you doing? Hey, Gus. Uh, call out of New Jersey. Um, when I was looking at um, my my when I remember the trial. I just remember seeing the Goldman family. Um, right. If I'm not mistaken, is, is that the father with the, the very, like, thick mustache? That's the Goldman? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Um, you know, with all this evidence, um, you know, with um, all the information that you provided, 
And um, if he was in the, if he was sitting in the courtroom all this time, you know, how, mm-hmm. how could the family, you know, I know, I know you're grieving, you know, a loved one's death, but with all that sure. damning information in favor of um, the defendant, um, mm-hmm. Simpson, how, how could they still to this day come to the conclusion that he's guilty? And well, why because... Were they so, I'm sorry. No, go ahead, go ahead. And why would... No, no, go ahead. I was going to say because their information came from the prosecution and the police who convinced them. I mean, these, not everybody's a bad cop, right? So you want to tend to believe in the police and the people that are fighting on behalf of the victim and say, we got your guy. But as you sit, they sat in trial every day. They had to have questions about Furman, but the kind of, you still want to believe. And don't forget, they also had the, they were surrounded by media. They were kind of, and, and it's aggravating to know because I know people that would just trigger certain things in Fred uh, Goldman that would just get them all, you know, he would just, and they were just doing it. Um, the media spent the entire time in this case, shamelessly fawning at the feet of the prosecutors and the cops, because we don't tell them anything. Yeah. We'd have press conference and all that. But we wouldn't tell them what were our trials other than the man's innocent. You'll see in trial that he's going to be innocent. But like you say, the family, I, I felt bad for the family. I mean, I get calls. Oh, they hate the Goldman's. It's like, I don't, I feel bad for them. I have empathy and sympathy for them. I just wish I could get to them someday without being on TV or in a podcast or all that and say, give me a question. I'll answer any question you have. Come to my home, look through every file I got, see if you can find some stuff that would incriminate Simpson more than what the media did. And, And let's go through any issue you have a question, any single issue in this case. And Lord knows I have spent 26 years thinking about this, not 24 seven, but all the time, all the time, because you go, God, if it could happen to a guy like, you know, when it happens to a little guy in the courtroom that you see at the PD's office or something, you know, uh, they got no money. And of course the cops don't spend the money they spent. If you knew the amount of money they spent our taxpayers for all these agencies to try to convict OJ Simpson on stuff that we now know is junk science. For example, the hair and fiber, stuff was crap uh and and just so much stuff i'm getting away from your question about mr goldman but um i understand why he's so angry and it's because i think his mind is closed then they had the civil trial and um you know they they got a victory against oj i still think some of that was bad uh badly presented by their side uh, you know, the shoe, all that stuff with those shoes, those pictures of shoes, I think it's complete hogwash made up stuff. Cause if it was there, why didn't it come forward in a criminal case? Cause you know, Marsha Clark, anybody would love to have that. That would, would have been the most incriminating stuff of all. But you know, the FBI did a, the most exhaustive shoe print footprint exam in the history of the FBI and nothing came back to Simpson. Then all of a sudden, the civil trial, we got these pictures by guys. You know, I could have put Prince Charles in those shoes if I had that kind of graphic skill. 
And so, and we weren't allowed to look at that or examine that or have time with that. So, um, I understand why the Goldman family is so upset and, uh, there's nothing I can do about it except offer, uh, the opportunity to sit with them and, and, uh, instead of in front of TV cameras, come to my home or I'll bring all my stuff to your home and you ask me any question, I'll find it. I'll get in one of these boxes and pull out your, your question or refute your question with what, what is factual that shows Simpson didn't murder your son or his ex-wife, the mother of his children. So, okay. I, I have one more question. Sure. Um, okay. Um, so, you know, now that that case is in the past, um, what do you think is the greatest motivative factor for people not revisiting a case and saying we may have got it wrong? Do you think it's, it's money because um, the OJ guilty industry has been very profitable or racism? Which of the two is the stronger well, factor? Well, it's both. Uh, in my opinion, number one, it's racism because you could put together a hell of a documentation, a documentary movie on his innocence, but they didn't. They went the other way. And then the ESPN did some 30-30, which I thought was kind of a lot of crap in there. And then they 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 washed themselves with Emmys and Oscars and, and awards and all this stuff that, that, that in that field. When it Basically, this was a street case. This should have taken two weeks to two months to try. And we were in court for 10 and a half months. Okay. And so they made this, I don't know how to describe it. It's the beginning of reality TV and the end of journalism as we knew it. Okay. Uh, and you look at it now and it, and at least in my eyes, it's racism. You know, it's, if this was, like I say, Dan Marino, Joe Montana, uh, uh, Peyton Manning, uh, any great white athlete, they would spe- they'd be spending millions of dollars to show that the guy was framed by it. Let's say it was black cops that hated, you know, white guys that were ball players. You know, what I mean, T- just turn it around a little bit, and you would see that how quickly they would have gone to the defense of all these folks, especially if there's kind of questions about things and, and misbehavior by police officers that you trust to come in and tell the truth in front of a jury. But, you know, black defendant, too bad, you know, even if it's OJ, there's no, there's no money to it. It's 26 years later, Lee Bailey and I finally got a book. You think we got any money for this book? No. They get Marsha Clark four or 5 million. Chris Darden got a million or two. All the losers in this case got money. We're just, you know, and I ain't doing this for money. I'm just doing it because I think I know what I'm talking about 26 years later. And it really gets under the skin of white people when I claim it's racist. It's no different what they were doing to O.J. Simpson as a group than what that cop in Minnesota did to Mr. Floyd. I mean, they, they kneel, not only kneel on his neck, but glare into the camera and say, F you. You know, and that's kind of, I know this is crazy metaphors, but I see it in in my work and in my life and all that stuff on a, you know, a daily or a weekly basis. And it, and, and, uh, 
you know, I just have, I've got friends that slam their hands on the table. Mac, you always bring up race. What's wrong with it? You always got to bring up the racial part of it. And I go, well, if you don't see the racial part of this, that's because you enjoy a white privilege that you don't even understand because you don't get pulled over. Your kid doesn't get pulled over because he's driving in your BMW because he's white. But a black kid driving a BMW, they got to pull him over because what's he do? And then it just goes from there to the next to the next. I mean, uh, this whole this whole crap that went on last week with all of these, whatever they are, proud boys, proud girls, whatever, you see, they're all talking about uh, uh, how horrible this country is and all this. They're the same people that screamed at Colin Kaepernick who basically peacefully knelt down to say, to call attention, say, listen, my brothers are getting shot and killed by white cops and there's no recrimination for these cops. They get off. They, oh, their life was in fear. They're, they thought the guy had a gun when he had a cell phone. And yet uh, these guys are showing up with guns and everything else and, and screaming and, you know, just think if, uh, I think back when the militia out there, the, the Bundy or whatever that guy was in Utah or Oklahoma, wherever the hell it was, where those guys were held, holding off the Bureau of Land Management for, I don't know, days. I said, Can you imagine if six black guys got automatic weapons and said, we're a militia? They'd have hosed them down. I mean, with, with machine gun fire. These guys, they get treated with hand kid gloves, uh, same thing with this Washington stuff. It just, it's had me up for a week, you know, because I have lost some friends, lifelong friends over that because their go-to default position is, what about the Black Lives Matter? What, when they were blowing up the, uh, Portland and Washington? I go, this not, this is not, you're, you're talking two different things here. And, and, uh, and how many black uh, protesters were shot with rubber bullets or shot with real bullets or beat up or hosed down? And you look at these guys, cops are letting them in and they're taking selfies and all that stuff. It's, it, it's just, you know, and if I bring this up to my friends, you know, they want to have a fist fight. So I just uh, I have a new attitude that they don't exist in my universe anymore. And I just, including some family members, they just don't exist. Uh, I'm 73. I'm going to be 73 years old. I ain't got time for it anymore. Spent my whole life talking about this stuff and getting shouted down. And so I don't, I just, I just go, if that's what you, if two and two is nine in your world, have a nice day. Uh, I think two and two is four. I calls them locks. I sees them <laughs> in the immortal words of some great umpire. Uh, and if it's, if it's upsetting, I'm sorry. But that's how I see it. And that's, I saw that, and it didn't dawn on me during Simpson. I'm thinking, hey, all my friends in the criminal defense bar around the country I've worked for, white lawyers, all, they got to be seen. We're kicking the government's ass in this case. And yet, all of those folks are saying to me, Mac, you know, he's guilty. You know, God bless, you guys won. And I go, no, we didn't win. This was the innocent man. Forget the celebrity and all of that of Simpson. Think about his mom and his sisters and his kids. Just like uh, everybody's thought about the, the Goldman's 
parents and his sisters and all that. Well, they got all the sympathy, but what about Simpson? Even if Simpson did do it, okay, that would reflect on his character, not on his family's uh, feelings or character. And yet, you know, they were all just shot down. I mean, anybody that was friendly with Simpson was somewhat accused of helping him in a murder. Can you imagine if your best friend says, I just killed my wife, I need your help and get rid of evidence. You go, well, listen, I might help you. I'll help you get a lawyer, but I'm not going to dispose it. I'm not going to be involved in a crime, you know, unless you're already a bad guy. But these were all professional people that hung, that knew Simpson for 30 years or whatever. And, and they got a Kathy Randall, Kardashian, all these people got accused of helping them. AC, this God bless AC Collins, one of the greatest people I ever met in my life. But this guy got accused of everything and was offered money. He turned down millions of dollars from the tabloids to even talk to him. So this is my man. Here's what happened. You know, they knew that he was bringing him back to Los Angeles. This wasn't any guilty guy trying to escape. He went to the to the um, what do you call it? The funeral or not the funeral, the uh, cemetery to pay his last respects before he was going to turn himself in. You know, we've talked about this a million times. I said, the mistake was doing that. You should have first gone down and had a press conference in front of the police department, say, I'm turning myself in today. I didn't do this. These people will show you by the time, but you know, it's easy to look back and say, could have, should have, would have, but, but certain things he did turned out to have everybody think, Oh yeah, he's guilty. So I, I, I don't know if that answered your question about Mr. Goldman, but uh, thanks for letting me rant again. Uh, but yeah, it's racism in my opinion. That's why you don't see anybody coming forward. Listen, we couldn't get a, bu a book publisher to help us, you know, for years we've been trying to do it. And every, the same story. Well, it, oh, this country isn't ready first O.J. Simpson book. Bullshit. There's ready for, a, if you said he did it, then we'd sell a hundred million copies just so people could say, see, I was right. When you say you've been wrong for 26 years, no one's going to, you know, who's going to read this. Maybe your younger listeners that only heard about this. Not my generation. My generation, you know, told their kids he's guilty. It's the kids that I talk to when I go to a college class or something like that. They get interested. They say, wow. But they've seen their whole life, they've been seeing this kind of racism and stuff. So you go, hey, way back when, here's look at this case from way back when, before you were born. Here's what happened in this country. So when you see what happened last week, it's not hard to imagine what happened in 1994. At least it shouldn't be hard to imagine. Anyways, I'll settle down here for a minute for your next question. <laughs> Sorry about that. Thanks, Father. I'm, I'm, I'm done. Thank you. All right, man. Thank you. Nice talking. Much obliged, our caller in New Jersey. Uh, I'll check, see if other folks have a question. I just wanted to ask because we've been reading and we covered uh, Tubin's treatment of Faye Resnick and uh, allegations that this crime might be connected to the drug world and Tubin mm -hmm. kind of poo-poos all that and you know ah, that's ridiculous and absurd to say that this had some sort of connection to drug trafficking or Faye Resnick's uh, drug use or to say that some uh, drug desperados came there and kind of mixed her up with uh, Faye Resnick and, and that's how this uh, took place just from, from your research uh, any realistic yeah. drug angles to what happened here 
The only thing that I would say is, and being here in South Florida, I've done a lot of drug cases, trust me, since the 70s. And I've seen Columbia. If, if Nicole Brown owed a bunch of drug debt, the so-called dealers, the Colombian, the bad people, Mexican people, they would lean on O.J. Simpson to get their money. They don't go out to try to kill people. They want to get their money. They're on this for money. Not So the only thing drug-related to me was Faye Resnick was in an in-house, inpatient drug program the night of this murder. and And could it have been... You know, there had been this, uh, what do you call that, intervention with Faye and everybody to get her go in there because there was all kinds of drugs going on. O.J. knew this. He said from day one, look, in Faye's world, you're going to find somebody in Faye's world that knows something. Of course, nobody in Faye's world would talk to us. But say, for example, they're all done, and now they're going to say, we are going to cooperate. You know, we're done with this. Just leave us alone or we're going to tell the cops. Well, that could piss off a drug dealer. So uh, maybe that angle might work. But I just don't, you know, this is, to me, no different than a million cold cases out there. Yeah, maybe drugs were involved, maybe something, but they don't know who did this. And so what happens when uh, there's a murder tomorrow, for example, and what does the police say if they don't catch the guy in the act? We want to hear from anybody that saw anything, anybody heard anything. Please, here's our number. We'll keep your name quiet. We'll give you a reward. We need help. Well, they had all that in O.J. Simpson's case, and they ignored it. As a matter of fact, they attacked those folks and belittled them on the witness stand when they had all the help they wanted to have. So um, in terms of a drug angle, there could have been some angle like that, but this was I don't know what this was, but it's a double murder. Don't know the motive. We don't know who did it. But what I do know after all these years, I know who didn't do it. And that's O.J. Simpson. And, uh, you know, I don't know what else to say. You know, it's just, like I said, it's you can't. It's hard to argue with people. I don't argue with them anymore. I just go, give me your best shot, and I'll tell you what I can say to address that issue or this issue or whatever. But I don't know. I just know that two people were slaughtered, and and uh, there would have been a ton of blood evidence everywhere. And uh, in 22 minutes, Simpson doesn't have the time, and he's really not a uh, whatever an expert in the dark arts, if you will, such as an assassin or a or a or a killer or something like that that lives in that world. Simpson wasn't in that world. He doesn't have the wherewithal or the skill to pull something like that off. The average guy like you or me, except he had a great football career. But, you know, uh, any one of your listeners tonight that's thinking about killing somebody could spend all night long thinking, I'll guarantee you you're going to get caught or you're going to leave evidence. or there's gonna... So, you know, just this case was so... Uh, the more it goes on, the easier it is for me to say there's no way this guy did it. And there's a way that I believe Mark Furman planted the glove. And there's a reason why there's so-called evidence in the Bronco. I think he took the glove from Rockingham, stuck it in the Bronco. Then he brought him over to look at, quote, the little blood dot on the side of the door. Uh, 
he's made a mistake or two in his testimony when he talks about opening the door and looking in with his flashlight. He opened the door, and where the blood is, the so-called smear is also telling because it's on the passenger, it's on the console between the passenger seat and the console. Mm-hmm. So it's much easier open the door, stick it there, okay, close the door, and then later take it out of there and put it on the air conditioner. As it's more, it's insane to believe O.J. Simpson slaughtered these two people and has very little evidence except for this glove at his at his uh, Rockingham home. So uh, each little issue you could go for days on. And we tried to do that in this book. I mean, I tried to get every speck of testimony from the prelim, from the trial, from the civil trial, from police reports, for all of this stuff, and, and say to the reader, like, you know, go to the, for example, drugs, to start looking at the various drug angles and, and go to the various testimonies and all that sort of stuff. And, and, uh, I mean, Faye Resnick, she, remember the big, she was in hiding from quote OJ's people she, to do this book because she was afraid they would find her and kill her. Her book was a load of crap. Okay. So, and guess what? She's still alive. So where are all these OJ people that wanted to kill her? I mean, she made herself some sort of victim. She's the one that will go to the Goldman family and look them in the eye and say, oh, I don't know anything about this. You know? They'd laugh her out of the Well, they wouldn't laugh her out of the room. I'd laugh her out of the room. Hmm. Let's see. We had a person dialed in. Uh, M.A., did you have a okay. question for Mr. McKenna? You should be with us. M.A., did you have a question? Hello. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Um, thank you for taking my call. Reading 31. Um, this is my first time hearing Mr. Benkina, and I didn't hear at the very, very beginning. But I did want to know, as I'm listening to him speak, did you already ask him, guys, um, with your definition of racism white supremacy? Has he already answered that? I did not. Well, I was so excited I- to... Uh, get to the OJ information, uh, this program context of white supremacy. I use the word racism and the word white supremacy. I use them as synonyms and I use the same definition for both terms. The definition I use is as follows a global system of people who classify themselves as white and are dedicated to abusing and or subjugating Everyone in the known universe whom they classify as not white. Uh, do you think that definition is accurate? Do you think such a system exists, Mr. McKenna? Of course I do. Like I said earlier, uh, if you look at the, in my world, the court system. So the court system, the police system, the trial system, the jail system, the prison system. It's basically controlled, if you will. I mean, there's black folks in positions, but the system itself is controlled by white people for years and years and years. And so, yeah, I, you know, uh, I guess I sound a little radical, but I'm just going on my own experience. You know, I'm Oldest of 10 kids. My dad never used that word. We grew up on the south side of Chicago in a blue-collar family. We never heard that word. We never heard, uh, you know, anything of the sort. So 
maybe my experiences helped me not be, uh, you know, I worked in steel mills. I went to Vietnam and, you know, you get in combat. You don't say, hey, send up ammo with a white guy or, hey, send me a white medic. I'm wounded. Don't send me the black guy. Send me the, you know, so that in my world, I've never really I've seen it. But I've never been part of it. I've been on the other side of it and watching it. And uh, like I say, I upset a whole lot of white people when I talk this way. But that's what I've seen. I've seen this system that I'm in as a as a very racist system. And uh, just on a, not every single case that comes through there. But when you take an overall look, uh, you know, through the peephole down down onto the system, there's far more people of color that have been abused, uh, innocently locked up for years and years, taken from their family, shut down, don't have money for, you know, a team of lawyers like Simpson had. I mean, all Simpson was able to do was start to level the playing field. And every day, Joe, white or black, goes into the court system and you're up against the FBI, the DEA, whatever it might be. You don't have a chance, you know. You don't really have a chance and, and you don't have the money, but at least in Simpson, you had enough resources to at least kind of level the playing field and bring in some people that have done this for a long time and have seen this sort of stuff. And we all fight the same battles every day. And, uh, but yeah, I, I agree with you. The system is, is, is completely racist. And if anybody doesn't believe it, you might want to look at the TV uh, video from last week in the Capitol building and seeing these freaking people, these Duck Dynasty, uh, well, not just the Duck Dynasty types, there were military people in there. And there's these kind of folks are, I remember saying that the FBI had done a report that they were concerned about white racist nationalists infiltrating the police department. It's like, Oh, no kidding. Did you ever hear the name Mark Furman? We could start back 25 years ago. Now, 25 years later, it is infested with white supremacists. But they're, you know, they don't come into, into work every day wearing horns on their head and screaming all that. But they're insidiously all through the system. Okay. And whether it's in the government or in the police or in the in government agencies or even sitting on the bench, uh, it's there. Whether, you know, and it's not going to go away. That's my my fear is it's going to be a long time uh, to erase this. And will we ever? I don't know. But, you know, got to start somewhere and we ought to start now and and keep our knee on the on the necks of the white supremacists. But, you know, I'm just one little guy and want to speak in my opinions, but that's what I've seen. And, uh, I ain't make, I'm not making this stuff up. I've just seen it with my own eyes, heard it with my own ears, smelled it with my own nose. And, and, uh, you know, teach my kids a different thing. I teach my kids the right way. I journal journal stuff now for when my grandkids are old enough to say, hey, Pops was a pretty interesting dude, wasn't he? He's against what all, you know, all that stuff. 
You know, I mean, I feel like I'm a minority now, except when I'm talking to my friends and everybody's like appalled at what's going on the last four years and what's going on right now. So, uh, you know, good luck to us as a nation. Anyway, uh, do you have any more uh, folks that want? I couldn't really understand the woman. I need your help on that, Gus. I couldn't understand her question. She wanted. Uh, I couldn't hear it. She wanted, she did sound a little muffled, but she wanted uh, your response to the definition, which you answered in the affirmative. Uh, Emmy, did you have another question for Mr. McKenna? I'm sorry that you hit it to me that clearly I have a, I have a mask on. Oh, anyway, being safe. Yeah, yeah, so I do apologize. Uh, hey, you know, I'm not one of those people. I will wear my mask. Um, yeah, girl. No, that was that was my question, um, and I didn't really have a follow up one other than I think I did just to clarify a little bit because his definition. Do you classify yourself as white, Mister McKenna? To classify myself what? As white? Are you classified as white? Yes, I'm a white. As man. white, yeah. white. Yeah. Okay. Um, uh, uh, as for clarification, I don't know what you look like, um, but also in his definition, um, so it I think encompasses all those who classify those themselves as white, as participating, upholding, and maintaining the system of racism, white supremacy. Would you agree? Well, I agree that happens. I don't agree that I do that. I think I fight the system on a daily basis, um, even though my skin is white. Uh, I forget what uh, Johnny used to call me. Uh, I was a black man. Oh, he used to call me. I was a black man trapped in a white body. And we would do that jokingly, you know. But but uh, uh, just because I speak out about it. I mean, we used to be uh, somewhat of a celebrity, right, the investigators. So there was three of us. Uh, that used to leave when we were at Shapiro's office, leave his office about eight o'clock every night, go get dinner across the street at ABC, whatever it is over there. And uh, there was me, another investigator, white guy. And then our IT guy, Howard Harris, my friend, he was just here at my house earlier. The black guy that did all of our, uh, remember the Elmo and all that in court, he kind of, I always give him grief. He looked like Peebo Bryson, but he's the guy that does the Elmo in the trial. Kind of, we call him the quiet man, but, I remember saying one time, we'd go to this restaurant every night, walk in, and uh, I forget the fellow's name, the maitre d', he was a Persian fella. Uh, and he would always say, hey, Pat, or hey, John, hi, Howard, he'd shake all of our hands. Never once in three or four months did he shake Howard's hand first. He always shook me first, or John, and then Howard, or me, John first, me second, and then Howard. But it was always, hi, I am bring that up one time. I said, did you ever notice how, God, what was his name? Uh, I forget his name. But I, I said, did you ever notice, Howard, how, and I was saying this in front of John, how he always shakes your hand third, the black guy. And then John gets pissed off at me and says, what, what, what do you even talk like that for? And Howard, Howard who I knew before OJ, and now we still best friends, he always said, you, you know, you pick up on stuff like this. I picked it up, but very few white people 
that I've known would uh, would pick that up like you do. I said, well, I know how to read a room. You know, that's one of my skills in my work is reading the room when I walk in. And uh, it's just something I always noticed. And so even though my skin is white, I feel like uh, I'm not, I, I'm certain I'm not a racist. I, at least I feel that. And, and uh, I hope I live my life that way. Hope I teach my kids that way. Uh, and, uh, you know, so that's all I can really say. I'm uh, a white guy and uh, classified as a white male. And uh, that's who I am. But I try to live my life as a uh, person that accepts anyone, race, color, creed, religion, uh, gender, uh uh, disabled. If you're disabled, I don't make fun of disabled people. Uh, uh, just, you know, that's the way my parents raised me, period, end of story. I mean, I think all of this stuff here uh, that's going on, this racist stuff, the scary part is at home where these people are from, their children are being taught this stuff. Okay, that's why I don't think it's going to just go away. All these idiots that were out there with their... Uh, you know, Chewbacca bikinis and horns and all this ridiculous stuff. And talk about making uh, disrespect in the flag. They want to whine about Colin Kaepernick. These people waving flags and Confederate flags. I mean, to see a Confederate flag in the Capitol is at this day and age. And they listen to these people whine about uh, change, uh, taking down statutes of Confederate soldiers and renaming Air Force bases, Army bases, whatever, to see the backlash when people suggest, I mean, to me, it's like, get rid of that stuff. And yet, these people want to hang on to that. You know, the the racists want to hang on to this stuff. And it's just like I say, it's a sad thing because those people are training their children, if they have any, uh, to be the same way. And their wives and girlfriends, Whatever was out there, 1,000 people, there's 50,000 of them right behind those people that think the same way they do. And it's a scary thought. So, anyways, there you have it. Did that answer your question, Emmy? It did. And then I have one follow-up. May I, then? Yes, ma'am. Sure. Um, As a man who is classified as a white... Actually, if I get the two-parter, and then I will keep myself after this. Do you think that people who are classified as white are greatly changed by the system of racism and white supremacy? And then how do you think, or what do you think, will bring about, as a white man or a man classified as white, will bring about the end of the system of racism and white supremacy? Thank you for answering my questions, and thank you guys for taking my call. Sure, Gus, you need to help me because it was muffled and I didn't get the question really well. I I put my thinking cap on so that I could listen closely. So her two-part question, uh, she says, uh, part one, uh, she says, uh, do you think white people are sincerely pained about racism? That was one. And then the second part is, what do you think, as a white man, what do you think it will take to bring about the end of the system of white supremacy. Okay. So the first part, geez, I already forgot the first part as a white person, sincerely uh, pained, sincerely pained. 
people like me, people that I, I uh, associate with in the public defender's office and other places, uh, white people that identify as white, there is a lot of us that are pained by it. But we're a minority, I think. It's scary to say, but I think I'm a minority in my generation. I, because when you bring it up, I get the same kind of, like I say, the default position is, well, what about Black Lives Matter? And what about this? And what about that? I mean, to me, that's just as racist as uh, that's more racist than listen to what I just said to you, to, you know, to the person. Uh, and so uh, in terms of pain, I don't think the majority of people are pained. I think they will sit in their white privilege and go, uh, well, they can't. I mean, there was no black people last week that I the only black people I saw in, in the Capitol were the poor cops that were trying to keep these racists out of there. Okay. But when they see uh, the black lives matter protest, which it turns into uh, whatever looting or something like that. We want to shoot these people, shoot journalists in the face with bullets, rubber bullets and all that. You didn't see any of that last week. So the pain, uh, I don't think there is pain in the quote, the white race like there should be. There is pain in certain white people, but in terms of the whole race, I don't, I don't know if they, if they, have the same pain that I feel when I see this. I mean, it's painful enough for me to, to lose a relative, a blood relative, just say, you're done. You don't exist. Goodbye. Don't even call. Don't, you know, that's someone in my own blood. And then the second part about what would it take? I have no clue other than do the best I can. And the people that I know do the best with our children and try to raise them up. Right. And, uh, I, it's sad to say, but I don't know how to how to how to get rid of the racism. The only way I see it happening is, frankly, is because the numbers are going to change. We're going to be a minority down the road. At least I see that in Florida, where the uh, the brown people, the Cuban Americans, the Guatemala, all the immigrants that come, the the Guatemalans and the and the uh, the other people of color they're far more uh there's going to be far more of them than there is the white folks so you know maybe that'll uh have an impact on it uh i don't know i just don't have an answer of how we stop the white racist system that we're in like i say we have black people in positions in the system but they're not in control of it. They need to be in control of the system, you know. Uh, you know, I hear about the the guy that one of the guys they arrested. He's whining. He's not eating because he wants to be a vegan or, or uh, not vegan, but uh, organic food. It's like, huh, that's your white privilege. Because I know people that eat peanut butter or, you know, bad bologna and the, the shit that they serve you in prisons and jails around this country. <laughs> if they, had the, they don't even think to say, hey, I'd like some organic food here. I'm not going to eat this. They eat, you eat it and, and suffer with it. So uh, the only way it goes away, I, I don't know how it goes away. I'm just at a loss, Gus. I don't know what to say. Uh, 
You know, I didn't go to the finest schools or read all the classics. I'm kind of a street guy from Chicago and I grew up, uh, loving my brothers and sisters, you know, uh, of any color. And I just wish that everybody, you know, lived that life. You know? Wow. So. Emmy got both of her questions answered. I believe, uh, much obliged uh emmy wow i uh did not get a chance to hear about that the the demands for i'm not gonna eat this i will need uh whole foods organic meal while i'm in prison for my treasonous conduct in the nation's capital yeah, the life guy, the guy wear, yeah the guy wearing the horns his mother is saying he, well, he's on a hunger strike and i guess the federal judge What's funny is I heard that they've, they're going to give him that kind of food, you know, organic food. I'm thinking, give me a break. How does that happen? I have sat with inmates for 40 years watching what they're being fed and going, oh, man. Uh, and, and I'm watching them wolf it down because that's all they get to eat all day long. And, you know. And these guys, I, I had a bunch of cases one time, big drug case, all white guys, and they wanted to have sent in at their own expense fresh fruit. You don't get fresh fruit in jail or prison. You get this crap that's, you know, uh, I don't know where it comes from, but you sure don't get And they were offering to pay. And, the, you know, Ted say, nope, eat what we served you. And, uh, and so... You know, this guy's wanting organic food. And somebody had a funny thing, said instead of Trader Joe's, it was Traitor with a T. Your food, <laughs> you, wanna, you, you might need to go to shop at Trader Joe's. <laughs> you know? I'm, I'm stunned. Um, well, I guess maybe I shouldn't be surprised. I do remember Dylan Stormroof. He did get to stop and get a Whopper after having killed nine people at Charleston's uh, Mother Emanuel Church. So I guess that is another component of white supremacy racism, that you can commit all sorts of crimes and still get caviar and, you know, vegan meals, quinoa. Yeah, they put him in a a, a freaking, I think, a flag jacket in case somebody took a pop at him. He did everything to protect them. Mm. And then you got some guy kneeling in some guy's back or shooting a guy seven times in the back and with no charges because he felt like he was in fear of his life. I don't know about you. I fought in Vietnam. I could shoot you in the back. I don't need to shoot you seven times if I'm, you know, Mm. and then walk away from it. But and that's what I mean about the system. The system is so controlled. Uh, say what you want, but this this poor it's on video for God's sakes, you know? The guy's going into his car and in front of his children he gets shot seven times in the back. Uh and the cop, there's no no charges against the cop. And uh you know, if people were outraged and wanted to do a demonstration, they'd be met with uh SWAT teams and hoses and water cannons and everything else drones they suck it up you know yeah drones everything so it's just god it's a scary thought you know that that woman just uh, shattered me when she said what can we do to stop it i don't know i think it's gonna it's gonna grow exponentially sad to say until all these white these guys are 
you know, I don't know. I don't know what it's going to take. But uh, it's a sad day for America. Mm. More it to started with OJ. It's just <laughs> that certainly is a, a huge part in it. My goodness! Like uh, we had Stephen Singular on the program who uh, wrote the book Legacy oh, of I Deception. Know. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm I sure you do. Stephen. I'm sure you do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he, uh, uh, go ahead. He, He's a good man. He, I enjoyed his book. I learned quite a bit. But he said uh, this. We had him on. We had him on the day. Of the melee in D.C. And oh uh, we were talking about domestic terrorism because he mentions he links Mark Furman with Tim- Timothy McVeigh in his book with the uh, Oklahoma yeah. City bombing. And that happened in 95, the same time as the trial and saying, oh, wow, Mark Furman moved yeah. to Idaho. Timothy McVeigh was hanging out in Idaho. Maybe they know each other. They have the same type of views like the turn. I was like, wow. And I'd never thought of connecting the two. And he said, you got to use the term domestic terrorist. He said, Timothy, I mean, uh, yeah, Timothy McVeigh is one component yeah. of domestic terrorism. And he said, Mark Furman is another component of domestic terrorism. Yeah. And I had never thought yeah. of, wow, Mark Furman is a domestic terrorist. And it was last Wednesday, the day of everything going to like, yeah, that is white supremacy. Racism is the domestic terrorism. And Mark Furman would be a great point illustrate and Without just a doubt. allowing that to fester for 25 years. And, here we are. Um, and what What do you think? What do you think Mark Furman has told his wife and children about race in the last twenty five years? I I shudder to think what kind of children grew up because I I couldn't think for two seconds of trying to teach that to my children. But I'll guarantee you, and he wasn't the only guy in the LAPD. Okay, I mean sure. we can go for hours on that too. Mark Furman was part of a whole group of people. Uh, as a matter of fact, way after this case, there was a federal judge that called the LAPD a racketeering enterprise for what they were doing to people of color. They were beating them up in the basements of, and setting them up and planting guns and evidence on people because, quote, they're gang members or they're people that, you know, you don't even want to examine anything about them or their life or anything. They just want to set them up and lock them up so the rampart scandal i've said that uh repeatedly in reading all this that people should it shouldn't just be rodney king it should be the rampart scandal like exactly what you just said mark Furman is not an anomaly like this is the entire decade LAPD yep. behavior and accusations of this sort of behavior, beating up black people, planting evidence on black people, doing as a systemic manner of practice, beating up and planting yeah. evidence, false accusations, like every single component of the OJ Simpson, racial slurs, all of it right there for a whole decade, way beyond. And even just the yeah. way that he was defended, uh, I pointed that out. It's not like uh, it was all oh, man. Yeah this guy's heart it was yeah. like no this is our guy he didn't do this like it took those tapes right. coming out before it became oh wow like this guy's awful and oh yeah we're not gonna support i mean ramp lots to study mark Furman, uh, and again the way he's been sanitized that again is systemic uh, that's not just one person that is group activity to protect and restore honor and all that to mark Furman. so he's yeah. not such a bad guy right. that 
but oh, they, uh, they managed to bring him on the Oprah show, and she <laughs> kind of had him with kid gloves. I mean, it was just insane, and and uh, it you know it's just it's not only insane, it's disgusting that uh, uh, all you got to do is listen to these. I'll guarantee you, Oprah Winfrey never sat and listened to these. I don't know how many hours we have of it because it makes you sick to your stomach, whether you're white, black, brown, whatever, to hear this guy. And then, speaking of sanitizing, oh, he was making up, he was role-playing for a movie. What movie do you role-play when you talk about I'm the detective in the biggest case in the country? Without the glove, the case goes bye-bye. Bragging about it. This is how arrogant he was. Even after we got a spotlight on this guy, he's bragging to Laura Hart McKinney. That he's the detective. He's got the glove. Uh, it's just phenomenal. It's phenomenal. It's the same as the look in that cop's uh, Minnesota cop where he's glaring at the camera like, yeah, I'm doing this. Do something about it. Kneeling on that poor guy for nine minutes, eight minutes, whatever it was, Mr. Floyd. And uh, that's what Furman does. He just glared at everybody. He said, you can't get me. I'm doing it. I'll do it again, and I'll keep doing it again, and you won't stop me. So, hey, that's our guest, Patrick J. McKenna. Uh, it has <laughs> been a uh, hoot having you on the program. I'm going to definitely be looking forward to you and Effie uh, Bailey's book coming out later this year to get more information uh, about the case, okay. and we can add that to our library of uh, O.J. Simpson literature. But Man, it has been uh, grand uh, to have you on the program with us uh, this evening. Uh, I'll definitely re- I've been checking out some of uh, Mr. Heiss's work. So, yeah, I'll try and uh, do some oh, more yeah, digging yeah. To, to see if maybe we can talk to him and encourage folks to do some researching as well, because he has great work on the timeline and such, too. So, oh, yeah, he's if, done a phenomenal uh, job. Phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah. So thank you so much well, for for sharing time with my us. My pleasure. Definitely yeah, appreciate learning from you, uh, Mr. McKenna. And as I said, we'll be looking out for the book and uh, hopefully we'll get a chance to okay. uh, reach out and touch with you again. Yes, sir. I appreciate it. Thanks so much and enjoy the rest of your evening, sir. We'll talk soon. Hey. All right. Real good. Real good. Bye-bye. Evening. Good evening. The cow's context of white supremacy. That was Patrick J. McKenna, uh, one of the investigators for the O.J. Simpson uh, defense team. Uh, we've been doing our O.J. Simpson. Right. And in short order, we have got a pretty like nifty little catalog of uh, programs. We had uh, Stephen Singular, as I just said, last week he was with us. Uh, we had F. Lee Bailey a few weeks back. Uh, Mr. McKenna today. We're doing the book club. Uh, Jeffrey Tubin. We've got mm, about halfway through the book. So, I mean quite a bit of material uh, already and we still got the other half of the book to go uh, work to see if we can get some other folks on the program as well uh, to talk about the case uh, I cannot say enough like man I totally thought OJ Simpson was guilty in fact when he metaphor we talk about metaphors all the time when he used the metaphor Mark Furman and what they were doing to OJ Simpson is the exact same thing as the white officers in Minnesota having their knee on George Floyd's neck. Oh my goodness. <laughs> Before I think I would have been like your joke. Get, get out of here. 
that is that that is not the same thing at all to even compare the two like OJ Simpson killed those white people number one and blah 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 I mean I would have rejected that sort of thing totally uh, in saying you know that was uh, an act of police terrorism and the way that the police treated OJ I wouldn't have signed off on that at all <laughs> he was totally guilty and what a misrepresentation and uh, you're disparaging the memory of George Floyd to compare him to OJ Simpson and <sighs> confusion is lethal uh, it has been I hope uh, people you know that listen to the cows like we're in the midst of a global uh, health pandemic uh, the terrorism in the nation's capital, uh, potential impeachment of the current president, all of these things that are happening, people losing their job and having to make decisions about uh, getting a vaccine, all of these things that are happening in the world. Why on earth is this the moment that the cows and Gusty would say, yes, let's talk about O.J. Simpson. I hope uh, that it makes some sort of uh, logical sense uh, that people are able to uh, learn something constructive. And I mean, even (laughs) our guest this evening making direct connections to things that are happening right now with the O.J. Simpson case. Two weeks in a row, in fact, (laughs) direct connections with what is happening right now and the O.J. Simpson case. I would have laughed at all of that not that long ago, uh, just not being informed about the case, uh, reading more important than watching television. Can't say it enough. The book club is on Thursday. We are starting the trial this week in the book club. So if you followed the trial, if you didn't follow the trial, if you, you know, whatever your position is on whether or not OJ Simpson is guilty, would probably be. Uh, an informative experience uh, to study uh, how Jeffrey Tubin writes about the trial. Uh, and then we're trying to add other information as we go to from other sources and things of that nature. So uh, at least for me, it's been extremely constructive and very humbling just to see like, wow, like I believed all of this, like what you heard from uh, Mr. McKenna this evening. Like I believe like, yeah, O.J. Simpson killed these white people and flew across town and disposed of all the goodies and just has been fooling us for a quarter century. Like, yes, I believed all of that. Didn't even watch the trial to have any uh, information, just, you know, believed it by osmosis. I guess, if anything, a reminder of how easily in this system we can be convinced of black guilt no proof, no evidence. A lot of times you don't even have to do any investigating. We got you. This nigga did it. Don't even worry about it. He did. We know he did. it. <laughs> we'll, we'll go about connecting the dots later, but just trust us. This nigga did it. These niggers did it. Sometimes it'll be Central Park Five, but either way, nigra, nigger, they did it. They're guilty. Incidentally, for this program, I was so on my, how shall I say, O.J. Simpson grind, right? I was ready to 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 dig in and let's make sure we can cover as much as we can with Mr. McKenna and blah 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 that I didn't even you know do our normal counter racist setup like hey are you classified as white 
definition for racism. You know, our normal questions when we have a white person on and we had uh, Emmy come in and, and host properly. Like, wait a minute. What definition did you get that? Did you agree with the definition of racism? Let's let's make sure we do things properly. Are you a white person? <laughs> like to uh, make sure we cover our bases before we go out, like much obliged to Emmy for making sure we did not shirk our uh, hosting uh, responsibilities because that is so important. Uh, just definitions. What do we say? Uh, what do we mean? What definition are we applying to the term racism or white supremacy? Because so many people uh, throw those terms around and or white privilege did hear that a lot this evening. We'll throw that term around without having a definition. And that's where we start to get clarity, understanding, having a definition. The grandsister, Dr. Frances Cress Welsing, also a Chicago native. Uh, she used to talk about that all the time, making sure we have a definition. So much obliged Emmy and she was doing double duty at work and then still able to call it and make sure we got the definition in and clearing up that yes we are talking to a white man uh, let's see our caller I guess in the Los Angeles area hand up did you have a question uh, commentary thoughts on what you heard from uh, Mr. McKenna <laughs> Just getting loud background. I don't know if you're in a vehicle or maybe that was a television or I'm not sure. Maybe you're on speakerphone, but it was a lot of it's kind of piercing my ears. So I'll give you a second uh, to see if you have your background noise situated. If you need to kind of relocate, get to a quieter area, maybe that'll work. We'll be here tomorrow. Incidentally, uh, Miriam Carey, we talked about speaking of the madness at the Capitol. We had uh, the author of the book, The N-Word is No Secret in the, what is it? The N-Word is No Secret in the Secret Service. That's it. Uh, He was a guest on the program uh, in 2019, 2019, guest on the program, black male, uh, former member of the Secret Service. And we talked about lots of of workplace racism. He talked about working with other non-white people uh, and how being confused, confusion is lethal. They would be confused and a lot of anti-blackness, fascinating dialogue, uh, racist white people. Like we talked about so much in his book, he has a whole like pretty massive section on Miriam Carey uh, and working in the secret service when the shooting happened uh, and just talking about the details and what a massive act of racism this was uh, that if Miriam Carey was white, there is no way she would have been murdered. Uh, And it was such a big failure that we didn't get to invest more time talking about this when he was on the program before. And I was like, man, that is messed up. Like we had talked about Miriam Carey and some of our listeners uh, know about uh, her 2013 murder or should know uh, about her 2013 murder. Uh, And with what happened at the Capitol last week, I know myself and many other folks immediately they didn't have lax security and breaches in security in 2013. They had live fatal response and then got applause for killing an unarmed black female with her child in the vehicle afterwards. That's what happened then. So we're making up for that tomorrow. Uh, We will have uh, the author back with us on the program uh, and we'll be devoting the entire program uh, to his experience. He went and uh, spoke with her attorney, Eric Sanders. Uh, uh, How would I say the attorney for the family? 
uh, for Ms. Sanders, uh, Eric Sanders, who's a black male who's uh, done a number of interviews. He was on Democracy Now! and did reports uh, talking about the case. I've reached out to him. He's been, uh, I thought, very generous with his time in talking about this case and, and trying to make sure that people understand this is an act of police terrorism, white supremacy. Uh, but uh, we'll be going over that case and putting it in context of what happened last week uh, in terms of security protocols, what is supposed to happen, just the sheer volume of enforcement officials in D.C. for what was allowed to happen last week, as opposed to the way that they responded to Miriam Carey. But that'll be the broadcast tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Tune in. We'll be here every day for the next week. All right. We'll try again. Our caller in the L.A. area. Let's see if it's audible. We can turn it. Yeah. <laughs> sorry, about, sorry about that, guys. Yes, this sir. is um, 0526. Um, hello, guys. Hello, Kyle. Uh, thanks for the show tonight. Um, it, my question for you, Gus, is there any particular reason on um, Black Talk Radio the context of white supremacy is not um, on, like, the clickables anymore, like, where it has all their um, content? The content is just no longer there for some reason. I mean, I was looking for it earlier. Is there any... Uh, our subscription expired. It's renewed now, but it expired over the weekend, uh, or I guess at the beginning, well, either or, beginning of the year, end of the weekend, uh, but it's renewed now, so uh, that's probably why uh, it expired briefly, but um, I reckon it'll be there uh, either today, tomorrow, whatever uh, time I renewed it, uh, I think this morning sometime, so I guess it should be back uh I don't know, sometime this week or so, uh, just check back, uh, to see when it's there. Uh, in the meantime, you can double check, um, SoundCloud, Apple podcasts. Uh, I posted a number of the other different platforms where all of the archives are available, uh, for any of the programs that had like the broadcast for today and the compensatory call in, uh, just in case they're not posted there where you can download or stream or what have you, you can access, uh, all of the content. But I think that should be, uh, the problem and it should be remedied. I reckon within, I don't know, within a, about 24 hours or so, I would think. Just keep checking back, I guess. Thanks. Yeah, I, was, I just thought maybe you uh, maybe quit or something, but I'm glad that's not the case. Thank you. For sure. For sure. Didn't uh, didn't give up the counter racist grind quite yet. It has certainly been unpleasant, but uh, yes, did not uh, storm off the air today. Uh, should be back uh, tomorrow, I reckon. Um, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Miriam Carey, or not Miriam Carey, but talking about her 2013 murder. Looking forward to making up for just an omission. I can't really say omission because I was, you know, looking forward to talking about all of that. I think it's important that case and all, but it was, we had so much material, some like almost like today, it was a lot of material to cover. So sometimes three hours is not quite enough to cover everything. Should have made that a greater priority back then, but thankfully we will have time to make amends tomorrow, Wednesday, January, 2013. We'll be ready to roll. Uh, Any other folks that have comments, they needed to make sure they shared, got in.
grand. Cool, everybody. Satisfied for today. Hope it was worthy of your time and energy. And hopefully the OJ Simpson content uh, is worthy of folks time and energy. Uh, and we're not, you know, wasting time uh, in the midst of all of these really uh, serious problems, things that are happening in the known universe, U.S. specifically to be talking about a case from 25 years ago. Like, man, we could be talking about substantially more pertinent things or whatever the case. But hopefully this is uh, constructive, relevant information on what racism, white supremacy is, how it works, what it means to be white. If not, I guess folks can let us know that, too. Like you've been vested uh, way too much time talking about uh, Arunthal James and, uh, you know, find something more constructive or relevant to talk about. Uh, Let's see. Make sure I didn't miss victim of racism that dialed in victim of racism. Question, comment before we are all done. Oh, hi, Gus and uh, Carl's listeners. I just wanted to say that just the way how they treated Mark Furman, um, it seemed like they used him as a racial, uh, as a white sacrifice. And, uh, Mr. Fuller has that, has that, um, term that, you know, sometimes when, um, white supremacists, well, suspected white supremacists have conflicts between each other, they, they sometimes will use each other to, to make the system stronger. So I just wondered what anybody thought of that. If if you have a comment on that, sir, thank you. Uh, I think certainly white people at times, they will uh, sacrifice or make uh, someone classified as white expendable uh, within the system. That certainly does happen. Uh, sometimes, certainly sometimes it might be with uh, like a Donald Trump, uh, Donald Sterling, uh, a white person, who gets accused of practicing racism and maybe there's a lot of evidence like it's not just, you know, a verbal accusation. It'll be video and corroborating proof. Maybe you have some other white people like, oh, yeah, this white person definitely practiced racism um, where they'll just say, you know, we can just isolate and we'll say that this white person, yes, is unfortunately racist and or this white person did do some bad things and we might have to punish them and yeah we can't have white people doing this sort of thing this is just terrible although this isn't all of us you know this is an anomaly but yes this is a bad white person they will do that sort of thing if you get like it like with this where you get I think he said uh, Mr. McKenna like 20-40 hours of content uh, these audio uh, recordings of Mark Furman talking to uh, Laura Hart McKinney and nigger this and as he was saying you know F all the niggers and you know bomb them and burn them up and kill them and you know if I see a black guy and he's got a white woman and you know I stop him and I make up a reason you know that type you get caught and you've got hours and hours and hours of that like oh yeah we might have to might have to sacrifice old Mark but even there whew, that's almost like you know if you watch long enough it almost transitioned from that to White people don't get fired. They get transferred because Mr. Furman, uh, they did for a time say, oh, man, we got a he's he's a racist. Even uh, Marsha Clark, one of the prosecutors in the case at the, the closing arguments, she says, is Mark Furman a racist? Yes. Is Mark Mark Furman the worst the LAPD has to offer? Yes. Do we wish 
he had never been hired as a police officer. Yes. Do we wish he had never been born? Yes. <laughs> I mean, this is in the, the closing arguments. This is, you know, millions of people watching live on television. So, I mean, like, that's massive white sacrifice who says that about a white person ever like you could lynch a black person and they're not going to say you're a racist and we wish you they don't even say that about Hitler but like I said you wait long enough and he talked about Dominic Dune and we'll get you a book deal and all this now he gets to go out on that he has a better reputation than uh, OJ Simpson like now you know hey they just used it. He's a victim. You know, he comes out and talks like, oh, they just, they tarred and feathered me. And oh, they just tarnished and played the race card. And oh, woe is me, victim. He, that's basically what he says. I was a sacrifice. I was a white sacrifice. They just had to call somebody a racist and blame everything on me. And woe is me, poor Mark Furman. Oh, I mean, it's, but he gets to write books and make millions of dollars he gets to go on Oprah Winfrey and all these different talk shows and documentaries and make lots of money like he has a much better reputation than OJ Simpson Fox they have him I think he was like a he had like a title he had like a position it wasn't like he was just you know guest will come and holler at you every other week he had like a a position you know like he was a regular he was on you know in installments and such so absolutely white sacrifice although it almost transitioned to he just got transferred you know any other thoughts uh, folks had we'll have much more to chat about with uh, Mark Furman and all that as we get through the book club. We have, let's just say we just, we're just getting to the trial in the book club. So we haven't even got to, we'll be able to like process, see how Tubin writes about all of this, like when Furman first testifies and then once the tapes come out and all that. So we'll see how all that unfolds in the book, or at least how Tubin writes about all of this uh, in the book. But yes, we can keep that in mind. Is he, being treated like a sacrifice is he just going to be the one racist scapegoat uh, who gets blamed for why OJ Simpson got off we'll keep that in mind and what I'd said I told people Laura Hart McKinney he said she felt guilty about all of this like man that no good OJ Simpson did it he killed those white people and it's my fault is these audio tapes that let that no count OJ uh, get off for killing those white people I said that like tons of these witnesses who had exculpatory information that would tend to suggest maybe OJ didn't do it they thought he was guilty <laughs> like uh, and what I said I don't think it was Laura Hart and McKinney like oh I want to do the right thing and you know I want to come and share this information because Mark Furman is a racist like no it does not sound like that's the way it went and no it didn't sound that way at all if she felt guilty about all this it should be yeah I'm proud to come and step forward and expose a psychopathic race soldier uh, but I didn't hear that I didn't hear that at all it was man let that no count OJ off we'll pay attention to that in Tubin's book as well anywho we will be here 
tomorrow. Much obliged for folks tuning in. Miriam Carey. If you don't know who Miriam Carey is, you should definitely tune in tomorrow. If you are familiar, uh, Grant, make sure you uh, share and, you know, make sure your folks that you care about offspring, other family members are informed about Miriam Carey. And we will be ready for tomorrow to compare and contrast what happened in the Capitol to the performance in 2013, where I believe some of the very same members of Congress who were hunkered down and talking, we're petrified, we're going to die. Oh my God, what's going on? Some of those very same members of Congress from last week were the folks who sat there and applauded and hooted and celebrated the murder of Miriam Carey as excellent police work, keeping them safe and secure. Sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. We need our brain computer working completely. Uh, They said OJ Simpson sober. They got his blood right because that was part of the accusation. Like he was hyped up on all kinds of drugs and things that he had superhuman strength to go out and kill these people. Sobriety would be best. Uh, In addition to be sober, I would say hunker down. It's been crazy. Uh, The reports I saw today, they were uh, expecting additional violence uh, leading up to the inauguration next week. So be mindful of that. If you have to go out, be very vigilant uh, about your surroundings. Uh, If you see white people that are being like really anybody, but particularly white people who are being loud, rowdy about anything, be very alert. Uh, you're not engaging. No, you know, verbal confrontations uh, with folks under these conditions. You should be thinking, really, if they're out being loud and rowdy, this person might be armed. They might be with a whole group of folks who are armed. Like I did not leave my residence thinking, oh, yeah, I'm going to engage in some sort of mortal combat. That being the case, you are all or we should be all about minimizing risk and danger in lots of ways, masks, staying at home, avoiding confrontations, white people and or non-white people. If you got to go out, be very vigilant, very sober. You are buckled up. And if you are driving, you are not on the cell phone. Uh, Again, we need all of our attention so we can be very mindful about what's happening around us. Uh, And we want to do just the little things that we can to minimize contact with the mark Fermans of the known universe, uh, small things, being sober, being buckled, not on the cell phone, just the little thing that we can, little things that we can do uh, to try to keep ourselves safe. All of that said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, Your brother. Problem. You're a victim. Yeah. I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm.
Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.